Now, see, I would, thank you. I would just come in here. See, my problem would be I would just come to church here and just stare like this. You know, when you come into a nice building, you just kind of stare like this. It's like, man, this is nice. You know, I've known your pastor so long that we don't even really have to say much to each other. We just kind of look at each other and give that nod like, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is definitely just one of those moments of, you know, because I remember back when we'd walk into a meeting of 60 or 30 people and, and rented rooms and having to get out very quick because somebody else was coming behind us to, to with the room rental. And so isn't it great? I mean, you look, you look at your life and see the progress. It's, it's hard to sometimes look where we are now and you think, well, I've got all these needs. You just look in the rearview mirror and see where God's brought you. So isn't that good? Let's just, let's just thank him right now. Let's just have a little thank offering. Thank you, Jesus. I don't know if I'm standing in a scary place. Sometimes if the light doesn't hit you, then you look like you've got a flashlight under your face. I'm look, I'm not, should I get on here? Or is, I'm okay right here. I'll get good. All right. Um, yes, I always, when people ask me, they introduce me as Dr. Reisberg has a PhD. I go, no, no, I have a, I have a doctor of missiology. I'm a D-miss. People think I'm a Democrat from Mississippi when they see that. <laughs> it's like, are you, in the, are you an elected official? Uh, you know, I, I, have a, a, I have several versions of, of seminars that I do. Uh, I have a team that normally is with me. My media man, his son is being married in Vancouver, Canada. He was married yesterday. But as I processed this, I could have plugged in this thing. I just, as I prayed about this, and I, I actually drove. If you see this Sprinter van, this Mercedes Sprinter van out front, when I pulled up to the hotel today, people were lining up like I was the airport shuttle. I had to say, no, I'm not giving you a ride. I am not going to give you a ride. I'm going, I, that's my, I have my 16-year-old who you'll, who's with me, my 16, my 19, and my 25. My 16-year-old is 6'7". So this is something that gives him the room to, you know, have all of his, his movies and his Skittles and his, and he travels with us. So he's excited. He'll be here uh, later this afternoon, but, um. I want to just talk, what I'm hoping today to do is a few things, and as I had the 10, 11 hours to think about this driving up here, I want to accomplish a few things with you. Number one, I'm, I'm praying that whatever is your biggest question that you have that's blocking you, maybe you're here today and you're, there's a question that's in you, there's a, there's a concern, there's a, gosh, I... I think about this all the time, and I wish I didn't, and I have to push it down because this, when the sun is shining in my soul, this one question, the thing comes up, and it blocks the sun. It's an eclipse. So maybe there's something like that. So what I want you to do to start out with, if you have a piece of paper or something to write with, pull out that piece of paper as we start. And I want you just to, maybe this is the biggest question that you face, or maybe it's something that when it comes to sharing the gospel. It's the thing that you hope never comes up. What is that thing? And if you have that, maybe you're not. Maybe you're just here going, look, I'm, I'm ready to go. Um, my journey started with an older brother. Most of you have heard my story, but in case you're new, when I was uh, a third-year student at University, Mississippi State, I, I became a Christian, and I, I had an older brother, still do, who was in law school at Southern Methodist University of all places. And he was in his third year. He was at the very top of his class. He had a master's degree in psychology and counseling. 
He did not like Christians. He did not like Christianity. His hobby was harassing Christians. If you were a Christian, he wanted to get you unbaptized. So I, of all people, his little brother, become a Christian. And so he started studying the Bible to try to find all the contradictions in it. So he comes home. My parents, my dad, I was raised, uh, you know, my family. My dad was a very kind of stoic person. We, he was in the oil business, so he, we lived in a- Africa. We lived in Algeria, uh, drilling oil wells in the Sahara Desert right on the Tunisian border. So that's a story in itself, which, which actually was, you know, looking back, seeing how me getting to go into various cultures began at a, you know, when I, when I was a senior in high school, that was happening to open me up to how big the world was. And how different it was. And that if you're going to, like, Jesus loves the world, what's the world look like? It doesn't look like what many people raised in the South think the world looks like, the diversity. But anyway, so my brother comes home. My dad didn't, he wasn't an atheist, but he just didn't like me being so outspoken about it. So he kind of said to my big brother, why don't you help calm your little brother down? In other words, kind of let's use that atheism, kind of like a guard dog, you know, it's... You know, or like a, like a dog that's yapping. My dad said, just bark at him and scare him back over here. So my brother starts studying the Bible to find the contradictions. And usually when people say that to me, they say, oh, the Bible's got a lot of contradictions. I have one usually close by, so I'll hand it to him. I said, well, let's talk about it. Of course, they back away because they've never really been that close. <laughs> and they say, well, there's just so many. And I go, well, good. It ought to be easy to find one. And then I'll usually agree. I'll say, you know, the Bible does have a lot of contradictions. It contradicts most of what you do. (laughs) You see, most people don't like the Bible, not because they've deeply studied it, because they've gotten a glimpse of themselves in the mirror of this word, and they don't like what they see. I remember when I was a kid, I got grounded in my... I, I remember looking for the first time I was looking for something to do, and I found my mother's makeup mirror. And it had two sides to it. One was normal, and the other was magnified. And it had lights all around it. And I remember the first time I turned that mirror over on the magnified side with the lights on and looked into my face and understood at that moment why women wear makeup. Because I wanted to put some on. There's something about the light and the magnification. We see something we don't want to see. When I was in college, I, I was a much bigger guy and, uh, you know, kind of walking around like, remember Uncle Fester with the big neck? Um, let's date myself anyway. But one of my favorite things to do in college, it, I worked as a bouncer, was I got to turn the lights on at 2 a.m. in the bar we worked it worked in And I got to watch people who had met one another in the dark. (laughs) I got to watch them when the lights came on, look across the table and try to get their phone number back they had just given. (laughs) There's something about the light that we don't want to walk into. And so one of the reasons that I know that the Bible was not a book that we wrote about God, but that God basically inspired about us because if we would have been the sole authors of this book we would have made ourselves look a lot better so many times critics of the bible look at the bible and say well look at all these things that are mentioned there well that's not prescriptive it's not saying do this 
but it tells everything. It shows the, re- the reality, an MRI of human nature. The good news is, is that when you turn this mirror over, it not only shows you your flaws, but the other side shows you what you can be. And that's why when, that's why when we look in this word, we see not just, yes, it shows us how we need to change and what's, what's wrong, but then it gives us the remedy. So anyway, long story, even longer, my brother started studying the Bible, came home to talk me out of it, and, uh, and so he began to laugh at the Bible, and all of a sudden, my clothes began to rip. My shirt ripped off. Green muscle came out of me. And uh, no, my brother, I, I sat there, and I looked at my brother, and I said this. I said, it's not what you don't know about God that's keeping you from him. It's what you do know. You see, the book of Romans says that people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's like trying to hold a beach ball under the water. And the more they try to push it down, the force then comes back at them even greater. So on the weekend that my brother came home to talk me out of the Christian faith, we baptized him. And he came up out of the water and he said, you haven't really answered all my questions, but I think I was asking the wrong question. Of course, my father didn't, he, when he, he said, please don't tell dad, because he was supposed to calm me down. Now he's baptized. So we had a family meeting not long after that at the, at the dinner table, and I was talking about Jesus real loud, and it was so loud that my father kind of paused and looked at my brother like, I thought you were supposed to help him, you know. So he said, what do you think about what your little brother's saying? And my brother's moment of truth came. He just looked, he put his fork down. He looked at my dad, looked at me. He just went, hallelujah. (laughs) So my father, uh, my father at 57 came to Christ. My entire family came to Christ. And so I heard later, I actually sat with an attorney Years ago, I gave his name away in public, and he said, please don't say my name because people start emailing me. They find me. So his first name was Martin, and he's in Austin, Texas. And he said, I was with your brother at SMU Law School, and he told me I'm going home to get my little brother out of this born-again thing. And what was ironic is, is that from that time, I've been going around helping people get out of the atheist thing. So I'm... Maybe the atheist whisperer, the atheist hunter. <clears throat> In fact, on campuses, I do this. I, I walk out on campus with the God test, and I'll, I'll walk up to some students, and I go, excuse me. I say, I, I'm, I'm looking for atheist. Can you tell me? And, and, and they'll stop, and they go, I think there's some back over there, like it's a, a gaggle of geese over there. Yeah, I think they're over there. <laughs> it's, I love that look on people's face when, you, when you're actually, hey, no, I'm looking for you. I'm looking for you. Jesus is looking. He seeks and saves the lost. We're not hoping to avoid the worst. There was a man in the Bible that stripped down, naked, no clothes. Jesus was ministering in the part of the Sea of Galilee where it was very normal. Big crowds, book sales were high, T-shirt sales. The disciples were excited about that. I mean, this is, let's just stay here. Jesus gets the disciples in a boat, and as he begins to go across the lake to go to a desert place, and the disciple, then a storm comes. You just see, as soon as you begin to go out of the normal pattern where everything's safe, it's almost as if the enemy wants to stop us from touching anything really 
significant. And Jesus goes across this lake, survives this storm, and there's a man running around there with no clothes on. And not only does he minister to him, the demons come out of the man into the pigs. Most of you know historically that's where devil ham came from. I just am obligated to tell you <laughs> to discharge my whole as a, as a theologian. <laughs> and then it says that the Bible says that, that he was clothed and at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. And it says, and they became afraid. It's as if they weren't afraid of the guy when he was just running around naked. We're, we're not afraid of a crazy, oh, he's running. There was some guy in Nashville the other day that was arrested twice for just standing in the airport uh, check-in line just naked. Not naked, naked. That means Naked means nothing. Not even a ring or a hat. You had nothing on. I mean, it's like everybody was, if, you, if you're crazy like that, that's normal. It says, but when they saw him at the feet of Jesus clothed in his right mind, they became afraid. It's like, can you imagine like a family coming out on Sunday, you know? They go to a restaurant and father's kind of picking his teeth and the kids are going, daddy, daddy, what, what would you do today? And the dad goes, let's go down there and watch that naked boy run around. I mean, he was just a, he was just a sight like an attraction. But what, what happens when you become clothed? in your right mind at the feet of Jesus. Our defensive coordinator for the Tennessee Titans was a mean guy. In fact, he'd been on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a player. Says, is, this, is he too vicious for the NFL? So he got fined $40,000 for making a wrong hand signal on national television against the Steelers, I believe. So the next game, his wife was so mad at the $40,000 fine that he actually taped his hand up, <laughs> taped all his fingers. So when he raised his hand, it was just like one big mitt. You, no one finger could be distinguished. That was just the way he could control it. <laughs> Pastor Brad, that's, <laughs> so his wife came to church, and she got saved. I mean, she was great. She's, her her her. Phrase was, I used to make fun of them. Now I'm one of them. And he'd, he'd, he would come, you know, once or twice a year. And when he'd see me, he'd kind of growl. It, mm. But I just, you know, whenever you see somebody like that, the love of God is, is so much more powerful than whatever that disturbance is. Whatever it is that I'm having or you're having to do to get beyond Whatever this hostility or whatever this force field is that a person has brought up, they, they probably got some legitimate issues. When I talk to skeptics, it's like, look, if I thought God was what you thought God was like, I wouldn't believe in him either. So I'll agree with him. I don't believe in the God you don't believe in. I don't believe in that God. But anyway, so I just, so finally is I just got to know this guy, this defensive coordinator. I finally asked him, I said, look, why don't you just take a step? Come to Israel with me. So he agreed. I took his fellow to Israel. <laughs> and we got to the very spot where that demon-possessed man had had all of those demons come out of him into the pigs. And that's where we baptized him.
And he said, this is where it all needs to go. All of this. When he got back on on, uh, the team, the players came up and were scared because he wasn't cussing anymore. Every other word was a curse word. I can't even abbreviate the word he used. I never told him to stop. He told me later, he said, I've only cussed once since I've been baptized. And he said, and that was in my mind. <laughs> you see, I can, I can walk through this thing and tell you that no matter who it is I faced, and it's not because of me, it's some simple things. Uh, I usually travel with a physicist. Many of you, would he, was, he just got back from South Africa, so I let him stay at home. But he's got a Ph.D. in physics from Duke. I introduce him as Siri's husband. You know Siri, you know, on your phone? There's very little you can ask him that he doesn't know. So um, we were down at Charles Darwin University doing our God's Not Dead seminar in Darwin, Australia, and watching professors and students engaging in the questions, the great questions. And no matter who you are, no matter how what your background is, the basic questions that we're going to walk through today, and we've tried to make them simple, are questions you can be confident in that the answers that you can offer, simple answers, are true. Because that's really what we're, what we're up against here is when people, when people talk about Christianity and whether it's shrinking, whether it's whether it's, you know, is it, is, it, is it losing its impact? And many people would say, yes, we're feeling more and more marginalized in society. You know, there's, there's a lot of statistics saying that kids go from, co- from high school to college and they lose their faith. And there's a lot of exaggerated people, 90% of young people. No, that's not, nobody's done that study. That's just completely just made up to scare parents into buying books. I want you to get the books, but not that bad, you know. It's not 90%, but let me just say that most uh, missiologists, statisticians of this nature would say that, that at least 50% of kids that leave high school will go to college and will pretty much put their faith away, maybe never to return, simply because they don't think it's true. So a lot of times people di- digress into my right to believe. You'll see some of that when I play a trailer for the next movie. But I'm, I'm not really the guy that's trying to get everybody's, oh, you have a right to believe. My, my real question is, or my real hope for you is, that you would come to know that what you believe is right. Because it's only so far that we can hide behind our rights rather than, is this story true? Does God exist? Is Jesus really his son? How do we know that? How do we know for sure? Is Christianity have any exclusive truth claim to say, you know, why is Christianity uh, true and that means other religions are false? Are we disrespectful by telling somebody that it's false? Is that really intolerant for me to say false? I mean, I was on an airplane with a woman years ago who had a beehive hairdo. You know that beehive? How many know what that is? Where I'm from, the higher the hair, the closer to God. And she was reading a Bible. I turned to her on the airplane just to give her a nice, you know, charismatic people, Pentecostal people. We like to smack a lot, you know. Hallelujah. 
praise God. I mean, that's, you got to get, praise him. Hallelujah. I remember the first time I came into a charismatic meeting, it just sounded like everybody was just, hallelujah. Father, hallelujah. Some woman prayed like she was jumping off a building. Hallelujah. So I saw a woman with a beehive hairdo on reading a Bible on an airplane. Do, do you think it's wrong to, to presume this was a Christian woman, a full gospel businesswoman, a Our Lady of the Lake, Mother Guadalupe something, Fatma something? So I turned and just gave her a smack. I just said, So, and I, I said, so you're a, you're a Christian. She snapped her head. She said, no, exactly. What she says, I believe I am God. She begins to tell me that she's God. Now to show you how bold I am. I looked at this woman and I said, don't let me bother you. But after a few minutes, it's like the Lord was speaking to me saying, son, you're the only one strange enough to talk to this weirdo. So I looked at her. I said, look, if you're God, I got a lot of questions for you. Now, would I have been, would I have been wrong in making a judgment that this woman was not God? I mean, at some point in time, was I able to falsify that claim? There's a philosopher of science named Karl Popper who basically said instead of determining whether something is scientifically accurate or should we consider it science, let's not try to prove it true. Let's ask the question, can we prove it false? And if something is done or said that cannot be falsified, then it's really in a subjective realm that should be thrown out of any kind of discussion, reasonable discussion. So we're constantly falsifying you know, sales claims or, or pit, you know, spam on the Internet. We're constantly falsifying images and suggestions and things are coming at us. And yet when it comes to religious claims, it's as if we're supposed to not be able to have any filter. We're not st- we're, we, we can't make any distinguishing decision as to whether this, no, that's, that's, that's probably not true. And so I'm not intolerant by saying to this woman, you're, you're, I, I, I just don't accept that you are God. I just, I just reject that. And I did it nicely. I did it real nice. And, in fact, the more truth you have to tell someone, the kinder you can be. I mean, when you, if you're a doctor and you walk in and somebody's got a terminal illness, I mean, I don't. I mean, you, the, the worse the news, the kinder you are. I mean, you, don't, you, you get down on a knee and you go, look, I don't know how to tell you this, but there, there's something really wrong here. So the, when I'm delivering truth to someone, the love that you share that with allows you to say anything as long as, as the person knows. I'm not gloating over that, you know, you're lost. I'm not gloating over your situation. I'm just here to, to respond. And so... These are the things, and this is why it requires so much. This is why I'm, I'm not just giving you some, I got some slides I could show you if that will make you feel better, but I'm really wanting this to soak into you because when you love somebody and when you pray for people, 
then you can tell them anything. But if, you're, if your own angst is high and you're kind of mad at them because you, whatever it is, it makes you nervous. I mean, I'm, in this generation, we, if, if, we, if we ever needed to pray and have our own souls harnessed so that we're not just reactionary, mad fundamentalist, angry people, you're going to hell. You know what I mean? That's just, we, we, we just, I mean, that's kind of like, you know, we can't cuss people out. So we just go, you just, you're going to hell. That's it. That's it. In the conversation. You, boom. I don't know what you're saying, but you're going to hell. Like, praise God. <laughs> Put that back in. Just going to, just going to hell. And in Tennessee, it's H-A-I-L. You're going to hell. So, um, after 30 years of campus ministry, that's where I met your pastor. We met at University of Indiana. Um, we share this DNA. That's why no matter how big our buildings or things that we do, deep down, Pastor Brett and I are, we're, we're evangelists. We're, I'm the world's oldest living teenager. I'm out. Now my goal is three times a month to be on a college campus. My publisher, my first book, God's Not Dead, my publisher gave me the right because his, I said, look, I want to give a million books away. I can't wait for mama or grandma to buy this book. So last semester, I gave 20,000 God's Not Dead books to students. It's, one of my, it's my great joy to get onto a campus and to say, I'm not here peddling you anything. Here's a free book. The only thing it's going to cost you is you've got to read it. Um, but in writing that book, it was to really summarize the evidence. And that's why I've got some books here. And it, I'm not here selling them to you for the, any other reason that I wrote the first book. And we'll have some probably, probably by the end of the day. But I wrote the first book with the mindset of I want the evidence for God to be memorable because when you get in a conversation with somebody, you don't have time to go back home and find all the smart people's books you've read or bought rather and try to retrieve something that you can use in that moment. Okay, we have to be ready to give a defense. If you're looking for a Bible verse, let me give you one quickly. This will be a drive-by real quick, 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to make a defense, to give an answer for the hope that's within you. Always be ready to give a reason for your faith. And so that first God's Not Dead book just gives every chapter title is a summary thought that if all you remember is the chapter title, what is the evidence for God? There was a beginning. The universe had a beginning. If you just realize that, that was revolutionary up until from Aristotle to Einstein, they just thought the universe was eternal. It's just here. All of a sudden in the 1920s, experimental evidence for not only Einstein's equations, but Eddington's, you know, and Hubble's telescope at all points to the universe having a finite beginning. That space and time came into existence. So if space and time had a beginning, that meant that that which created space and time or caused it would have to be spaceless and timeless. And so you begin to see Romans 1 lived out in front of you that it says the nature and attributes of God are clearly seen. Whether it's a complexity in our DNA. I was in the home of a man named Francis Collins when I was writing the first book, God's Not Dead, and he's the head of the Human Genome Project. He, in the 50s, Francis Crick and Watson discovered DNA, but Francis Collins, who is a believer, kind of opened the book and taught us how to read it. And what 
the amazing discovery is, is that, is that what life in essence is, if you say, what is life? Here's what they would say. Life is information. Big computer code. And not just, not just kind of crude, like little markings on a cave code. I'm talking about 3.1 billion letters long, ordered and sequenced. I mean, if you got a text from somebody that just had, that made sense, like one sentence, you'd know they didn't sit on their phone and construct it. I mean, I get messages like that where you could tell somebody sat on their phone and I can't figure out how that they did all that and then hit the send button. <laughs> what would you got to, if you got a text 3.1 billion letters long and you begin to see things that are just beyond our imagination, the universe from the very beginning, not only did it start from nothing, but at the beginning, it was fine-tuned, which meant, imagine if you've got a universe starter kit. Like back in the back, you got the soundboard with all the knobs. Back in the day, we'd say, man, it sounds terrible. And I'd see people run back to the back, and they just start doing knobs like that. And then it feedback. If you've got a universe starter kit and you've got a gravity knob, how much gravity do you put in the universe? Well, how, you know, is it like 1 to 10? Well, No. You're talking about trillions and trillions of options. And, what, and you've got to land that knob exactly at that spot. And then you've got, once that knob is set, then you've got to go over to things like entropy or the strong and weak nuclear force. And you've got to set those knobs. There's scores, dozens of these constants and quantities. And you've got to set them exactly right because if you don't, you don't have a life-permitting universe. If you put too much gravity, the universe never gets out of the blocks. If you put too little gravity, nothing, stars, galaxies, none of that forms. So the only answer that skeptics have is that, well, I know that's fantastic. I mean, there's a thing called the cosmological constant, which is crazy. And I barely understand it. It's, it's taken me years to figure it out. But basically, it measures the expansion rate of the universe. So the universe is expanding. It's, it's, it's kind of like if you're in the airport and you're on a moving sidewalk. You're walking on the moving sidewalk. The ground underneath you is moving, and you're moving too. See, not only are planets and stars moving, but the space itself is moving. And the expansion rate of that is the cosmological constant is point zero 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 one hundred and twenty three zeros. Point all of that. And then the last three at the end of the 123 zeros, whatever, it's 168. This point, all of that, that's the, that's the exact parameter it has to be because if it expands one digit faster than that, then nothing forms. If not, it falls back in. I mean, it, it is so fantastically beyond our imagination. I mean, there's only 10 to the 80th particles in the universe. And you're talking about 10 to the minus 123? That, it's so fantastic that the only response a skeptic has is, well, maybe there's an infinite number of universes. So now you hear what's called the multiverse, which is not science, it's just science fiction. In other words, if you have an infinite number of chances to win the lottery, then you'll eventually do it. You know, when I come to this old, when I come to this city, I always 
well taken care of. I mean, I just, I, this is, this is, if you could be a guest speaker at Grace Covenant as a full-time job, <laughs> what do you do? Well, every week I just fly into Grace Covenant and they take care of me. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like everybody's nice or they want to carry your bag. No, you're, I'm having a fight. Let me, I'll carry my own bag. No, you can't. <laughs> you know, so I can't even do that. And I, in hotel, you know, and if I walk in, I've been taken care of fantastically. Got in about two o'clock last night, but if you get to a hotel room somewhere and all of your clothes are already there, the pictures of your family are there, your favorite foods are there, your music that you love is playing, you would be correct in assuming that someone knew you were coming. You see, the universe knew we were coming because this whole thing, it's called the anthropic principle, is set up to say that Life was from the very beginning designed to show up at this point in history. So I want to, I want to encourage you, and that's why as you read, I'm going to have, and I'm, this is not a giant, because if you don't have any money, I'll give you this book. I give, I'm giving more away than I'm selling right now, simply because I want this to become so ingrained in you that you can give an answer, you can give a response. The evidence for God is overwhelming. It doesn't matter who, no matter what I'm doing, who I'm sitting with. And, and so we're going we're gonna to take a little break in just a minute. But I'm going to show you a tool. And what I've done is tried to create tools. Because this isn't about you thinking, oh, he's smart. Or, oh, I wish I could say that like him. That's funny. Okay, I want you to, it's early in the morning, so I needed to wake you up a little bit. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll. I'll give some more of that just to keep you thinking, you know, this is, I don't want you to start seeking the Lord in a dream here this morning. Um, but at the end of the day, the goal, our goal, Pastor Brett, and the reason why he's here sitting on the front row is because we, we know the power of you getting this just a few steps, a few key things. And you really, it really isn't big things you need to do. Some of you sitting there, well, I can never, I'm not smart. I can. No, it's, I'm telling you, the, the reason why most people don't share their faith is our fault. It's our fault. We're not teaching clear enough. We're not giving you the tools. So I could give you something that you would walk away thinking, oh, that, there's, and I, that, that's smart or that's really clever. Or that's, but at the end of the day, I'm, my goal is, is for you to walk out of here and have the ability to engage someone in a conversation and be confident in it. Okay, you'll hear this phrase that we say a lot called salt. Now, as a pastor, I've given out thousands of keys and steps and 10, you know, 300 simple steps to success. We give out all kind of keys, you know, giving out stuff. But you know what? This thing called salt has stuck with people around the world, even if they don't speak English. S is start a conversation. A is ask questions. L is listen. And then the T is, then you tell the story. Simple little thing. Start a conversation, ask questions, listen, tell the story. Now, that's compared to what we normally do as Christians, and I call that the talk method. That's where you start talking. You argue. You get louder. And then it just kick them, just going to hell. <laughs> I don't know what you just said, but you're going to hell. 
So we don't want to do that. And the great freeing thing is, is that if you learn to ask questions, then all you need to practice is, can I ask the right question? I don't have to pretend to have all the answers. In fact, I've just flipped the script. I'm, I'm asking questions now. Socrates was told years ago, many years ago, that it was kind of the, by the, this Oracle of Delphi, which is kind of like the Dion Warwick of his day. Remember the psychic hotlines? It's been a while. She used to come on right after professional wrestling. That's why I watched her. <laughs> Just as soon as my wrestling was over, there she was. And it was always this psychic, you know, well, you know, so the Oracle of Delphi said that Socrates was the wisest man alive. And Socrates said, if I am, and he went around to discover why he was considered the wisest man alive. And he said, if I'm the wisest man alive, it's because everyone else thinks they are. So Socrates' method was asking questions to help you discover your, the level of really how ignorant you were. I love it when I talk to people and they go, well, my religion's personal. And I go, I'm thinking, sometimes I say it, I go, it's so personal, you haven't discussed it with yourself yet. I mean, it's deeply personal. But you ask a few questions. I mean, I, you know, and I, it doesn't have to get this strange, but, you know, people say things like, well, I just hate all this organized religion. I love when somebody says they don't like organized religion. Because I say, look, you need to come to my church. We are real disorganized. You are going to love us. We are going to be your church. <laughs> then they'll go, no, 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 it's just, you know, it's just these big buildings. I said, okay, well, look, we'll just meet in the field. Forget the building. I'll just meet you in the field. And then, and then after a while, you just you find out that people haven't thought at all about the most important questions. And so what we do, what we do in, this, in these tools we give you, and we're going to introduce this thing. We have an app now called the God Test. We're going to... Show you a little video trailer to get you uh, excited, and then um, we'll, we'll take a break for a minute, and then I'm going sh- to walk you through this because this is a tool in your hand that can really help you. But um, by asking questions, people, in, in fact, we had a little paper version of the God test like this. This was, we had, I think we had almost 100,000 people that got trained in this one. And so this was how it started. So it, was, it had side B for believe. If you believed in God, it's side B. Side A is if you were an atheist or agnostic. I remember I was, I was in uh, Cape Town on my way back home to Atlanta. I mean, I mean, through Joburg to Atlanta. And I put my bag down at British Airways in Cape Town. Put my bag on there and the lady sitting at British Airways goes, she goes, um, you get to be the lady at British Airways. I'm sitting like the ticket lady. You know, you can just sit. I got the bag. So she... I go like this, and the lady goes, your bag's too heavy. I said, I know, but I'm, I get upgraded because I fly a lot, and when I get to Joburg, they'll, you know, I, I get extra weight. She goes, I'll have to call the supervisor. So I'm sitting here like this waiting. So I just reached in my briefcase, and I said, have you ever seen the God test? That's got all these images of stuff. And so as soon as she grabbed it like that, now she was, it was over. <laughs> so I said, do you believe in God? She said, yes. I said, well, let's just, while we're waiting on the supervisor, so I opened it up like this, and I said, how would you describe God? Now, I could tell she didn't want to talk. I said, that's okay. Just, t- just say it in your mind. Answer in your mind. So we started going through the questions, what does God expect of us? I just let her give her a minute to kind of think about it. 
Then we got to, do you believe in heaven? She said, yes, out loud. Then the next question is, does everyone go? She said, yes. And about that time, the supervisor came up, and he goes, everybody doesn't go to heaven. So I just backed away <laughs> while British Airways fought it out. I just let them fight it out like that. And then I just put this back. In, and when I got through the lady there, she said, can I have that? Um, I'm sitting, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this, but I'm in New York City in the Trump Tower, not visiting him. There's somebody I know there. <laughs> and and uh, this friend of mine who lives there, and he has this movie producer. And if I said his name, you would know the movies. He's actually in the Academy Award Hall of Fame. 70-year-old Buddhist atheist. So I just said, we're sitting and talking. I said, look, this, this God test, and it really is becoming one of the largest global surveys in history. And you'll see when you see the app in a minute, what we're talking about. I said, would you like to take it? He goes, I'd love to. So he, I, you don't believe in God? No. So I went to the atheist questions. And as I started down these questions, I didn't even, I got to the end of the questions for atheists. I got through, the host who introduced us said, look, we got to go to dinner. So the conversation abruptly ended. I didn't get to tell him any answers. I just asked him the questions and listened. Weeks later, we had another phone call. And he, here's what he told me, exactly what he said. He said, the questions you asked me, I haven't been able to, to forget. He said, my mind went to a place that I never thought it would go. If you saw the movie Inception, when they I actually fell asleep in it, by the way, no joke. Um, if you saw the movie, you know people fall asleep and then they invade their dreams. Anyway, it's a little scary, but you plant the right question in someone's mind. It's as powerful, if not more powerful, than a, than a propositional statement. See, it's not about just getting John 3.16 and standing behind a camera. Because we're trying to give answers out when people haven't even really thought of the right question. So what I'm hoping for you today to walk away from here is confidence that, as we'll talk more, the story is true. God exists. Jesus is his son, verified it with the resurrection. And that there is no, it's impossible for there to be no God. <clears throat> In fact, when you begin to realize it, that atheists even need God to not believe in him. There is no other explanation for our capacity to reason, even if it's reasoning poorly, than God exists. You can't stand here without being on the floor in the ground of being. In him we live and move and have our being. There is no, there is no ability to be and have rational, logical discussions without something existing metaphysical, meaning beyond the physical. It isn't just all molecules in motion. And that's, that's, the, that's not only the overwhelming scientific evidence. I think it can be proven philosophically with, with premises that 
that if the premises are true, then the conclusion necessarily follows. It is as true as a triangle has three sides and two times two is four. That is true no matter what you believe, no matter what you think. And there are philosophical truths about the existence of God that make God's existence as unavoidable as a triangle having three sides. And you can have that confidence. I'm not, I'm not, I don't go into a room of mathematicians and go, oh, somebody's going to have discovered that there's a four-sided triangle or a round square. It's just illogical. It's not, it's not true. So let me take a break and just while we do this. So the first movie, God's Not Dead, was in the way it came about, I was writing this book to give you evidence so you could be in a conversation. And really, the God test could be enhanced. Um, I'm, I'm literally driving down the road with a friend of mine named Troy, and I told him, I said, uh, I'm writing this book called God's Not Dead. He goes, that needs to be a movie. So he called the movie company. They came to meet Nashville, and I described to them the challenge that goes on on a campus that Pastor Brett and I have been living in for 30-plus years. Flew me out to Los Angeles, met with some screenwriters, went out to UCLA with me, saw us engaging students with the God test. And then if you remember the first movie, it was kind of a classroom confrontation between an atheist and a, and a, and a professor. By the way, I just got back three weeks ago from Italy. The movie is blowing up across Italy. And I'm, I mean, I'm sitting there with packed out crowds in these theaters. I started in Florence, went to Rome, and then Milan, or Milano as they say. And uh, I'm just telling you, the, the, the people are so hungry Wherever we've gone, whether it's in, in Latin America, Australia, uh, you name it. It's in, fact, in fact, I got the Washington Post had an article saying that Iceland had this high incident, incidence of, uh, of atheism among millennials. And I just got burdened by that. So I called the publisher. I said, is there anybody that you know in Iceland that can publish my book? Put me in an email chain with a young guy that's a publisher there. And in the email chain, he responds back and goes, hey, I'm in America on vacation. I said, where are you? He goes, well, I'm in Houston. I said, where are you going? Well, I'm going to Orlando, and there's a nonstop flight back to Iceland. I said, well, just drive to Nashville and dump your car, and I'll fly you to Orlando. This guy comes about six weeks ago, stays with me, and I said, just watch the movie. He just, he just said, we, we, we haven't had anything like this. So as we speak, they're showing the movie across Iceland. So in the last six weeks, my book is being translated into Icelandic. And we will be there this summer in July where the sun never sets. It's 24-hour sunshine. So if you're a golfer, come join me. I'm just telling you, folks, the, the, the truth of God, we have the answers. We just have to believe it. This next movie, as we go to break, is, uh, it, it's about really the essence of it is, did Jesus exist? So when I sat with the screenwriters and I said, look, the, the Internet, you're Internet skeptics. You know, if you Google something, people think, people today think they're, well, I've been doing a lot of research. That meant they use Google and Chrome, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing a lot of research. I mean, oh, yeah, you're really, you're a scholar. You Googled and went to two page. You went beyond the home page to the second page on Google. You're, we're just going to give you an honorary doctorate, you know. But most, you know, most scholarly information doesn't show up on the front page of Google. So you have, you have a campaign of misinformation. 
you have Bill Maher, the late night skeptic who um, loves to talk. He has these, you know, movie called Religious, which years ago, 2007, I believe, but it said that Jesus was the Jesus story was not original. It was borrowed from pagan mythology that is like the Egyptians or Mithras or Horus or Osiris. No sources, no scholars, no substance. The equivalent of a drive-by shooting is what that is. Or at the supermarket where you see, you know, Bigfoot stole my baby, that kind of magazine, that's his source. But if you say something bold enough, confident enough, oh, Jesus was just an Egyptian myth. Well, you know, I, we have churches in Egypt. I've been to Egypt. Uh, no respected Egyptologist believes that. There's, where, are you, where are you getting your information? So this is the superficial lack of substance thing that we're losing people to. We're, it's like somebody dying from a paper cut. This is what's happening spiritually to people. And so anyway, I was, as I sat with these screenwriters and described, you know, how do you talk about the historical Jesus? I was able to introduce them to several scholars. And a, a, one of you, if, when you see the movie, you're going to love my friend Jim Wallace, who's a, a, he's a detective. He's a detective, a CSI detective, cold case detective, was an atheist. And he studied the Gospels as an atheist. And he said, this looks like eyewitness testimony. Came to faith as an atheist using the same grid of how he looked at eyewitness testimony to see if it looked reliable and applied that to the Gospels and said the Gospels are true. Incredible guy. So it's a high school teacher who is asked a question, quotes Jesus as if Jesus was a real person, gets suspended and sued. So the defense, in fact, you'll see my new book, Man, Myth, Messiah, which y'all have already bought several hundred copies, so I'm, not, so I'm selling your books. In fact, at the end of this trailer, you'll see the law you're reading. In fact, in one of the scenes, the high school teacher goes, well, Jesus really did exist. And the lawyer goes, you're kidding. And so she goes in the movie and pulls my book off the shelf and goes, you got a lot of reading to do. So I can't wait to use that as a marketing. you got a lot of reading to do. You know, thank you for the And then at the end, you'll see at the end of this little trailer, you'll see him, the, the attorney, as they're waiting on the verdict, actually reading the book like, okay, I want to find this out for myself. So... I'm really, really proud of this book if I can do that in a godly way, if there's such a thing as godly pride, because this took nine months of research to really help you understand why Jesus existed, what is the evidence, even beyond the Gospels. But that doesn't mean that the Gospels shouldn't be used as, you know, as sources. I mean, they're the best sources put into one book. That doesn't mean we should discredit them. We should thank the people for gathering that and putting these first century sources together. How do you know that Jesus wasn't a myth? And what is the evidence for the resurrection? You see, Christianity is the only religion in the world that's falsifiable. Remember I said falsified? You see, this is not just a subjective claim. All the weight of Christianity is placed on one singular event was Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And Paul said, if it didn't happen, then your faith is in vain. No other religion says if this one thing does not happen, no miracle, no event, no one places any of the credibility of their whole system on one singular historical event. If it didn't happen, and that's why we talk about in here, you'll see I have a chapter called The Minimal Facts which are what are the facts that even skeptics acknowledge are true? 
there's at least two dozen historical facts that outside of the Gospels, the historians have to acknowledge are part of historical bedrock. Jesus was executed by Pilate. That's a fact of history. His tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Fact of history. The disciples believed they saw him alive. Even skeptical scholars will say something happened. Now, they don't, skeptics won't say it's a resurrection. They kind of think it's like, you know, like Jedi Jesus, you know, in Star Wars where Obi-Wan kind of comes up like in a holographic and then there's Yoda and then young Anakin. They kind of got old Anakin out and put young Anakin in there. In those images, that's what they think the disciples just saw Jedi Jesus like that. Number four, Christianity started early. Didn't wait till 300 like the Da Vinci Code said. Well, it got to 325 at Nicaea. No, it started days in the very place where it would have been easiest to disprove. All you'd had to do is go and produce the body. Go to the tomb. Christianity would have, Jesus would have been a minor footnote in history. So, here's the trailer, and then we'll go to break. God's not dead too, which are, God's really not dead. That's tongue-in-cheek there. The sound man in the back, you get that? Okay, here we go. In this day and age, people seem to forget that the most basic human right of all is the right to believe. Praise God, praise no prayers, no moments of silence, nothing. Think of the other children out there who are subjected to their repressive belief system. If we sit by and do nothing, the pressure that we're feeling today will mean persecution tomorrow. We're at war. What makes nonviolence so radical is its unwavering commitment to a nonviolent approach. Isn't that sort of like what Jesus meant when he said that we should love our enemies? Yes. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One of your students sent a text to their parents. Did this happen? If you're asking whether I responded to a student's question, yes. And your answer incorporated the words of Jesus. What were you thinking, Grace? The Thollies are asking that you be fired, plus revocation of your teaching certificate. How do we make this go away and not get blood on our hands? We let the ACLU do it. We're going to prove once and for all that God is dead. I'm no order in the matter of Thawley versus Wesley. Mr. Kane will insist faith isn't on trial here, but that is exactly what is on trial. You're looking to prove that Jesus Christ existed? Oh, that's ridiculous. I hate what people like your clients stand for and what they're doing to our society. You're under arrest. These people, they're looking to destroy you. Everyone's telling me to stay out of it. What is your heart telling you to do? I would rather stand with God and be judged by the world than stand with the world and be judged by God. I am not going to be afraid to say the name Jesus. that a Christian's right to believe is subordinate to all other rights, then it's not a right. Listen, you are out of order. I charge you with contempt. I accept the charge because I have nothing but contempt for these proceedings. God's not dead. He's surely alive. He's living on the inside. Rolling like a liar. God's not 
Stand up, take a break. I want to encourage everybody, go ahead and take out your cell phones, your iPads, your Google devices. Hey, and uh, go to your app store or your Google Play store and download the God test. Now, the... How do I say this without sounding like I'm just talking hyperbole? I am, the joy of this app is indescribable to me. I have a little, I have a a tracker that tracks how many countries it's been downloaded in. So, I wish you could see this. Where's my detective when he left? Who's got really good eyesight? Okay. So now, so the C, that's the first one is America. That's the downloads. And then see all these countries. So how many read? Oops. Twenty thousand downloads. Read read this right quick. How many cut how many what is that number? One forty what? 146. So 146 countries it's been downloaded in. This is so exciting to me. I just, the thought of somebody in Cameroon today, Cameroon, almost named a child that. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Barbados. I mean, the, the joy of this. So and what's even more exciting, so you see, this is the, if you, if you, when you pull this up, this is the home screen. At the very top right, all the way at the top, you see the language option, English, Italian, Spanish. We now have, we have a template that we're sending languages, and basically every bit of this test, from the questions to the answers, it's unlimited languages. We'll have... Within, by, by the summer, Pastor Brett, we're going to have probably 10 languages up. We'll have Chinese, we'll have Portuguese, we'll have uh, Russian, Ukraine, you know, we'll have it all. So the exciting thing is that then, it'll, then it is really going to start expanding as it gets into the language of the people where they're, engage, where they're using it to engage. So you say, start test, train me. My goal in the God test is to train you to share your faith in under an hour. I used to teach apologetics at Fuller Seminary, and I think I hurt more people than I helped. I, I think, you know, I'd, I'd come in with big boxes of books and tell them all this stuff, and I think they just kind of left overwhelmed, like, I just hope I don't run into a skeptic. Now, on the Train Me section, there's five videos that are total running time under an hour. There's one, like, five-minute video. Um, can you actually, I don't think... They can hear me back there. Can y'all hear me back there? Oh, you can hear me. Can you actually hit the train me button and see if we can play a video? See if that comes up. So you see the training videos, training video one. Hit the one that says, or touch the one that says global impact of the God test. Just see if that plays. Again, this is all last minute on the fly. There we go. Hit that. Touch that. Whatever you say. It's going to be small, but just get a little taste of it.
Brooks, and this is a God test. Okay, jump. Okay, it didn't work, but it kind of jumped to another video. But anyway, so you get the point. Go back to the home screen. Okay, start test. Do you believe in God? Let's just go no. I don't believe in God. Okay, so what are the main reasons you don't believe in God? So every time you click one of those little boxes, this is what now, in my church, we, we, we get excited, we start running. This will make, make you want to run. Whenever someone touches, tell them you'll call them back. Okay. Um, when anyone touches one of those little things, listen, this is going to get you excited. Whenever somebody touches one of those little circles, we record that answer within 10 feet of where they took that test. We have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of questions that have been answered from around the world. And so now we're doing the analytics and we can tell where you took that test within 10 feet, whether you took it in a coffee shop, university campus, and then we're going to build a team that pushes that information back so the people in Poland or people in the Dominican Republic or people in Georgetown can know what the people are saying and answering these questions. What are the answers to these questions? I hesitate to say this because you think I'm making it up. It is closely, fastly becoming the largest global survey on God in history because of the sheer weight of what we're doing. That's important for you because when you go to talk to somebody about the God test, you can say, look, this is one of the largest global surveys on God. Would you like to add your voice to the global survey? See, a lot of times people go out on campus or they go out and they're kind of saying, we're taking a survey. It's kind of a fake survey. They're not doing anything with the data. You know, it's like watching a, it's watching a singing group on a late night show and they don't have their instruments plugged in. It's like, I think this is their lip syncing. See, this is real survey. This is real data. This is real. So when I go at Arizona State University, we had almost 700 students last semester. We had hundreds of kids that we interviewed before we got up there. So asking, do you believe in God? Do you not believe in God? And then we were able to stand up, not only go through our presentation, but give an accurate feedback of what's, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the feel of the people on this campus? What, what are the, what are the statistics saying? What, what's the, what's the trends here? Okay, what are the main reasons you don't believe in God? And see the little red question mark at the top? It's one of my favorite little things on the app. You hit that, and this little, little cheat, little help comes up. What's the purpose of it? You'll find there's three reasons that people say they don't believe in God. I'll start with E. They say there's no evidence for God. Evolution says there's no need for God. Evil and suffering says he couldn't be there. So you see the answers, uh, conflict with science, evil and suffering, lack of evidence, multiple religions, and see the little additional comments, click that. When you hit the, little, the, whole, the white space, then you, then you can type in their, whatever else they want to say. We get that too, all right? So just click one, click one there, and then move and then hit the next. So click one, evil and suffering. Why is there something rather than Nothing. Hit the little question mark thing up there. Why is there a universe instead of nothing at all? Now, what scientists will do today is they'll say, well, nothing isn't really nothing. It includes the laws of physics. 
So they have to equivocate and make nothing be something. But, you know, when somebody says to me, the old schoolyard, well, who made God? Well, you know, okay, look. When you're dealing with creation, there has to be something that was there forever. It's either the laws of physics. Stephen Hawking says it this way. Because there's a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Well, that's a contradiction. You said there's nothing, so you're, you're saying there's, because there's a law like gravity, the universe can create itself out of nothing. Gravity is not nothing. That's a contradiction. I mean, it's a logical fallacy. It's like we were talking, Gregory, can you make, can God, if God is all-powerful, could he make a rock so big he couldn't move it? The answer is no. That violates the law of contradiction or the law of non-contradiction. God can't make a, a round square. He can't make a married bachelor. He can't, you know, he, he can't make a four-sided triangle. That, so the laws of logic themselves point to God. So that's just a schoolyard rhetorical device. So you, you go and you say, look, you either have, so what's more logical? A law like gravity that's just there inexplicably? Stephen Hawking, because there's a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Or an eternal lawgiver, which is more rational. To believe there's just a law of physics or is there, there is a creator, an intelligent mind behind creation. Okay? Hit, touch one of them, just say, always the universe, why is there something rather than nothing? Always existed? Well, science already says that didn't happen. There was a beginning, created itself. I was in one campus one time, University of New Orleans. I said, you got two choices. Either the universe you see created itself or it was started by something besides itself. I thought that's pretty logical. It's either started itself or something else started it. And the student in the back raised their hand and they had that look in their eye. They go, okay, there's like a third choice. And I said, what is it? They go, maybe we're not here at all. And I said, well, in that case, you wouldn't be here, so be quiet. Okay, laws of physics. Why is there something rather than nothing? Okay, just, okay, next one. Hit next. Do you find any ultimate purpose or meaning in the universe? You see, Aristotle said this 300 years before Christ. Aquinas in the middle, in the scholastic period, picked up on it. But basically, if you just wake up in the universe, Aristotle didn't even believe the universe had a beginning. But what, you, but, but what Aristotle and then Aquinas would pick up on is, is that you see what he called causality. You see, he would, he had, Aristotle had four causes, I think. One was the material cause. So what's the material, the material cause of this mug would be the matter or the, the stuff it's made of. Then you had the efficient cause. That was, that's, it's a, it's a coffee cup because of its shape, just like a ball has to be round. That's the efficient cause. What is it about this that causes it to be what it is? The chair, the efficient cause is the shape of it because it, it takes on, the matter takes on a shape. Then you have the formal cause, Aristotle would say, and that's that there had to be someone who created it or that. But then even beyond that, was what he called the final cause or the telos. 
or the purpose. And he would say that basically you could just look around, wake up in the universe, and you're going to see purpose everywhere. And all what Darwin tried to do that was now popularized by men like Richard Dawkins is to say that all design can be explained by natural processes. And so they'll think they've got some slap-down argument like, well, you know, the, the human body's not designed, the appendix. Well, number one, you're taking the one thing you're not sure about, talking about Darwin of the gaps, you're thinking one thing you're not sure what its function is and ignoring the 100 and whatever trillion connections in the brain or what some crazy number, the heart, the liver, the immune system, all of this. Now we know that the appendix does have a function in the, in the immune system. But, I mean, again, purpose is everywhere. And you don't need, you just you just looking at the stuff the universe is made of. Everything purpose is there. So do you find any ultimate purpose or meaning in the universe? See if there is no God, and we came from nothing for no reason, by no purpose, then there then all of what we think is purpose would have to be an illusion. So to be a consistent atheist, you'd have to answer no. There's no ultimate purpose. Okay, next one. Why do you, how do you account for the origin of life? Again, evolution only tries to tell you what happens after you get life. You've got to give evolution something to work with. It can't explain that first self-replicating molecule. See, Darwin would have thought that the cell was like a blob of goo, like pancake syrup that just dropped, like a glop. You know what a glop is? Glop is just when it's just, just like you... McDonald's pancake syrup, and it just, oh, gosh, and it doesn't, got all over you. And that's when you know you're really called to the ministry when it's getting on the front. Just the time I see somebody with a bunch of egg or pancakes, I say, that's called of God right there. That's why you find preachers at the Waffle House. There they are. But, but the cell, the cell, according to Darwin, he couldn't look down an electron microscope and see the city of complexity that's there. No understanding of that. Evolution can explain, evolution can explain the changes within superficial things like carpet or wallpaper or some of the super, but evolution can account for the structural changes of these developmental gene networks, which means that's kind of like the transformers when you take something that's really simple and like a car. and <laughs> See, there is no evidence of structural changes like that. It, it's all superficial bacteria becoming you know, immune to antibiotics or something else. It's more of a superficial change. So the origin of life if you, if I, if I, in, a, in one of our seminars, I play the clip of Richard Dawkins with Ben Stein in the movie uh, Exposed or Expelled, should be exposed, basically saying, yeah, the origin of life, we don't know. Maybe it came from outer space. If you go on YouTube and put Ben Stein or Richard Dawkins Expelled with Ben Stein, you'll see this clip where Dawkins goes, well, if you look, I think that life must have come from outer space, Dawkins says, because if you look close enough in the cell, you'll see a signature of intelligence. You see, whenever, whenever, you, see intelli- whenever you see information, which is what DNA is, it always points to a mind. 
You see, physics, physics and chemistry can explain the paper and ink on this book. But what physics and chemistry can't do is explain this, which is information. Information is a non-physical, non-material entity. And if you're an atheist, you have to be a strict materialist, meaning that nature is all there is. Matter is all there is. So if there is an existence of something non-material, then it has to be rejected. And there's, you can start with just the laws of logic. What about numbers? What, how do you prove the number seven? Or any number that, for that matter. If you're walking down the beach and you see your name written in the sand, you don't think, look at what the waves can do. You, you see information. When you see Mount Rushmore, you, th- you don't think, look at what wind and erosion can do. You see the evidence of information. Oh, what about the snowflake? It just self-organizes. Yes, but that's not a self-replicating. It has an appearance of design, but one little thing where you just kind of do an ink blot test or do something like that, that's the only little v- faint, veiled attempt to say that something could just, a design could arise on its own, but not information. Richard Dawkins would say this. He said, well, I need, a, I need evidence so conclusive that if I walked out into the night sky, what if my name was written in the sky? Then that's what it would take for me to believe. In fact, if you ask a skeptic when they say there's no evidence for God, I'll stop them and say, well, what evidence would you accept? And they go, well, they hadn't even thought about it. Then I'll say, well, what are you looking for? I mean, if you're looking for Steve Jobs, you wouldn't have found him by breaking down an iPhone. He's not in there. The creator of this building, the architect, isn't buried in the wall. That would be cruel, wouldn't it? I mean, just to say, well, we, he's been ensconced in the walls here. So what are we looking for when we're looking for God? We're not looking for a particle. We're not looking for a material substance. We're not looking for kind of a, you know, some kind of smoke like, no, we're, we're looking for the intelligent mind behind the universe. And that information points to a mind. That's why when it says in the beginning, God created, and then it says, and, and then God said, God speaks, and God speaks the information into existence. See, God encoded the information of life. There's no explanation for that kind of order except an external outside source outside of the universe speaking that information in. Okay. I'm just teaching this as we go. How do you count for the origin of life? Chance, laws of nature, extraterrestrial origins, you know, ET, uncertain. Next. Does evil exist? In other words, if there is no God, then there really is no evil. I mean, we just... You can't even explain the world we live in without borrowing Bible terms. I mean, if a, if a lion chases down an antelope in the wild, we don't, you know, it's not a crime scene. We don't have yellow tape around that. That's just what the animal world does. Okay? Next one. What is the basis of your morality? No basis, school, uh, social norms. You see, people say, well, can an eight, so you're saying that without God, without belief in God, you can't be good. No, 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 no. 
Can you believe, can you be a good person without God? Absolutely. Can you be an atheist and do good things? Yes. Can you be a religious person and do bad things? I mean, just because I believe in the speed limit and believe in the police doesn't mean I'll slow down. I actually, Pastor Brett, got pulled over in Midland, Texas, speeding to go to church to speak. And they pulled me over in the parking lot of the church. And everybody, everybody coming in to hear me speak was seeing me get a ticket. When I was in college, I got stopped so many times for speeding when I was a new Christian that the highway patrol invited me to his house. He said, why don't you just come meet my wife? I mean, he stopped me so many times. We just became friends. Now that, so, just because, so just because you believe in an eternal authority and his laws doesn't mean that you'll obey him. And there are people, but see, when an atheist does good things, it doesn't mean they don't need God. It really shows they've been made by God. You see, God has hardwired us for righteousness. Romans chapter 2 says that when the Gentiles who don't have the law do the things instinctively of the law, they show the work of the law written on their heart. And that's why one day God can judge you even if you don't even have a Bible or have read it. Because what God will do is he'll judge you based on your own standard. You see, when we talk about everybody falling short of, of God's standard, and they say, well, I had not read the Bible. Okay, well, let, what do you believe in? What is your standard? I mean, every person has some moral standard. I was watching Andy Griffith. You know, you know if, we, if you say Andy, Gomer, Barney, I mean, where I'm from, those are Bible characters. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, now you're preaching right now. Dear God. You know, and there was a drunk named Otis. How many remember Otis. I remember one episode where Otis came stumbling in there and they were trying to get him to tell where he found, where he got his, his liquor. It was like a still. Remember that? And so Barney was grilling him about where'd you get your liquor? And, and, and finally Otis looked at Andy and goes, Andy, we town drunks have a code we live by. <laughs> I'm thinking the drunks got a code, you know? Everybody says, well, I'm, you know, I got this. I, I really, I'm very sincere about my beliefs. Good. So how are you meeting your own, whatever you think God requires of you or whatever you require of yourself, you're falling short of that standard. In other words, you can't even live up to your own convictions. And that's the contradiction in us all. That's why we need a Savior. Okay? Next question. Just click one and then go. Do you think human life is special compared to plant or animal life? So... Any difference in where your dish is located in the kitchen, you know, between you and the dog? Any difference, you know? And, they, and, they, and they'll, they'll just go, well, I guess there is, you know? You're not just an animal. You're not just plant. You're not just... You see, again, back to Aristotle, he would say that the, the plant has what he would call a nutrient soul. The animal has what's called a sensory soul because an animals can emote or react. But we have a rational soul, meaning that, number one, the soul does exist. There's something that is a you. Because, see, if God doesn't exist, then you don't exist. 
Is there really a you? Is there a rice? Is there a bread? Is there a Daryl? Are we just chemicals? Well, our brains are just computers. Well, then who's on the computer? Who's making the choices? And if we're just chemicals and matter in motion, that, main, that just means that we're, we're, we're living out some kind of program that there's no one there programming it. It couldn't because that would require purpose. And if God doesn't exist, then there can't be a programmer. But we have real choices that we make. There is a real you. And if, because God exists, you exist. And there's an eternal part of you. There is a difference. So put yes in that next one. And then you go to how certain are you that God does not exist on a scale of 1 to 10? Now, Richard Dawkins, I keep picking on him. He said he's a 6 out of a 7. He said that uh, in a debate with the Archbishop of, of Canterbury, 6 out of a 7, which technically makes the world's leading atheist an agnostic, but I'm, he, can, he can call himself Donald Luck as far as I'm concerned. We'll call him whatever he wants. You reach a place to where you realize you're not certain Okay, and then finally, after you hit that, they'll they'll sell what they're, how they fall on that scale. And then the final question is, would you like to discuss the theistic responses to these questions? Yes or no. So if you hit yes, and it'll say you want to learn more, make sure you really want to learn more. Hit learn more, and then you've got a list of little short answers, discussion points. Now again, you've started a conversation. You've asked questions. You've listened. And again, if I get to the place to where I just ask the atheist these questions and they, and they get their answers, I'm fully content to walk away and not go through the answers. Because then I'm not, I'm not under some compulsion. I'm not like I'm trying to earn brownie points or, or like I'm in this, I got to make a sale. No, I'm, I'm, I'm literally just... Really, I'm really interested in what you have to say. You don't even need this. I mean, if you get the salt in your mind, I'm, I had my, you'll meet my boys later, but I'm, I'm in New Orleans uh, going to see the Lakers because my boys like the Lakers and, and walking down the, the sidewalk and there's my boys and then there's Scott Troy that I mentioned that is involved with the God's Not Dead movie. We're walking down and there's this psychic guy. And so I walk by him and normally I just tell my boys, don't look at the psychic, don't look, don't look. <laughs> So I, I just felt that little nudge, and I said, I, said, I, th- I think I'm supposed to talk to this guy. So I told, I told my boys, I said, I, I'm, I'll be right back. And I said, no, I'm not going to get my palm red. I'm going to go talk to the guy. <laughs> so I'm a little crazy. So I didn't have my God test with me, didn't have the app one out yet. So I, I went up to this guy as a palm reader, and he, you know, he didn't look like a broken down. He looked like kind of a young, hip palm reader. I mean, he didn't look like your average palm reader person. It was just like at the end of the rope, you know. So... I walked up to him, and I, I, I introduced myself, and he said he was a palm reader. I said, I, now, don't try this at home. I said, I'm a, I'm a palm reader. <laughs> now, if you're listening by tape, I'm not a palm reader, okay? Don't write me, and I knew he was weird. So I got the man, and I got his palm out like this, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew whatever you do, you just got to be, like, deep. <laughs> so I kind of, you know, I kind of like I was really like I was going through all the vast palms I had ever looked at and this was a serious palm so I I went like this and I said no I knew you need to kind of be dramatic take it slow I said now this 
this line very deep is called sin. It's been running deep all your life. And when I did that, when I did that, he just jerked his hand back. He said, oh, you're a religious nut. I said, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I said, I'm just messing with you. So I pulled up my chair and I got next to his palm reader. I said, so I remember I had salt. I said, so I started the conversation my own way. I said, I said, so tell me, I said, how did you become a palm reader? I said, is this a, is there a class? Is this like an internet thing? I, I mean, I've really never seen an advertisement about becoming a palm reader. So I, I was curious how he got into it, you know? And he goes, he goes, he said, I was a Christian. And he said, I went to a revival in a city in Florida, and I was seeking the power of God, and I didn't find it. And he said, so I got into voodoo, and he said, that scared me because I saw some stuff that was really, really powerful but really, really scary. And he said, that scared me into palm reading because it was more of a science. So I just kept talking to him. I, kept, I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, all I'm going to do is get to know him for a minute, ask him some questions. And so really, rather than trying to think of what I was going to say to him in terms of witnessing, I said, Lord, help me get the right questions to help him. Maybe even in his talking, he's going to hear something. And so after about maybe not, not quite 15 minutes, it was, I know this sounds like I'm really, how do I know this the exact time? But it seemed a little bit longer than 10 minutes not quite 15, he stopped. I'm asking him questions and sincerely listening. And he looked at me and he said, now you tell me why you do what you do. And I looked, his name is Miles. I said, Miles, I said, I preach the gospel to people. I said, because the gospel is the only thing on this planet that can tell a person what's really wrong with them. And I said, my wife was sick for several years. We didn't know what was wrong with her. We went to Israel and met a little doctor in Hadassah Hospital. And she diagnosed what was trying to kill my wife, what would eventually have killed her. And I said, once we found out what was really wrong, it was life-changing. He looked at me and he said, now I've done this wrong so many times, so don't think I'm trying to be the hero of the story. Because I've, I've been the, the, the anti-hero many times. But I said, he said, first of all, I want to thank you, he said, for not screaming at me. Because you imagine a psychic, I mean, at a table. I mean, Christian's kind of going by and going, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> I mean, he'd been, he'd been rebuked. He'd been smitten. <laughs> Hallelujah. Fire called down on him. Smote, rebuked, bound. Not really talked to. And then here was the amazing thing. He looked at me like this. He said, I have a mother that prays for me every day. And he says, I bet you're sitting in this seat in answer to her prayer. I mean, we make, we make an impression by asking questions and listening and not being short-sighted. Whether you use a tool like this, go to the A, go to the B side if they go back to the home page. So these are all little cheat seat answers. Now, let me, let me, okay, let me just say this to you. Here you go. Here's what I've learned about apologetics and learning to defend your faith. If you know why we ask these questions, okay, go back to the start to test. Let's just go through it real quick. Say no. We're going to go this real quick. What are the main reasons you don't believe in God? Again, three reasons. They, they're going to say no evidence. Evolution says there's you know, no need for him. Evil and suffering. Those three. You actually, by knowing the questions, you're going to 
by knowing what, this is what the average person, this is their response. I'm telling you, this is it. It's going to sift down into one of these three categories. No evidence, evolution, or evil. Next one. What is, do you find any ultimate purpose or meaning in the universe? Okay. Or why is there something rather than nothing? If you know why, if you know why you're asking them these questions, here's what I found. These become, these become the, the spaces like the, we used to call them cubby holes. These become the storage spaces where when you start learning to defend your faith, instead of just reading a bunch of stuff and then you go, oh, at least I bought it and you put it up. No, you'll actually begin to be able to have things to hang information on. And now all of a sudden, you're not just pouring, reading stuff that just goes through you and you don't retain it. You're actually able to have a conversation and something comes back. Um, so go, to the, go, to, go back to the start on, of the homepage. Okay, let's go start test again. Do you believe in God? Say yes. How would you describe God? You get it loving, holy, impersonal force. So you can click several of those, you know. So again, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Hindu, whether they're Buddhist, whether they're the woman on the plane, doesn't matter. You don't need a Hindu God test. You don't need, in fact, this works very well in India. Because you're asking a person, if you believe in God, how do you describe him? Or yeah, whatever. Now again, if somebody says to me, I believe God is a Martian. I'm not playing ping pong. I don't go... That's terrible. I, oh, no, no. I, no, again, I just, okay, cool. I mean, if somebody is doing me the favor to actually respond to my questions, then I give them the dignity of saying, look, I ask you. So even if you're going to give me some, you know, just kind of cynical answer, I'm at least going to write it down. I'll, I'll be glad. I mean, I'm, I mean, you have that posture of you're just thankful that they're actually talking to you. Let me say another thing. Everybody wants to talk about this. Once they decide... Once they find out that you're not gonna, you're not waiting at the at the net at a tennis match, ready to go ahead and answer. Oh God, I'm ready for you, and you're gonna slam it back in them. All of a sudden, they quit ducking, and now they're going to talk. And so, atheists are actually thanking us. They're thanking us. Thank you. This was really good. How do you describe God? Next question. Hit next. What does God expect of us to believe in him? So everybody, again, has some sense of what they think God's going to expect of them. Okay? Or you can write in their answer. Okay, next one. Again, how are you meeting those expectations? How are you doing based on the standard you think God is after? You'll find that everybody eventually knows that they're falling short. Can't even live up to their own standard. Okay? Now... The funny thing about that, go back to that other question if you can do that. Go to the top left where it says the arrow at the very top left. Okay, never mind. So I'll just say that. Does one true religion provide the true path to God? Yes or no? Important question. Okay. Do you believe in heaven? Most people, yeah, they, they, they like this one. 
This is pretty, pretty standard, yeah, of some type. Okay, yes. Okay, next one. Does everyone go? Now, I have found that everybody has a hell for somebody. <laughs> Hitler's there, ex-wife or husband, somebody you've unfriended on Facebook. There's all, there, it's not as big as God's hell, but everybody has their own personal hell for somebody. And then, but here comes the most, here comes the diagnostic questions here. Okay, that's kind of general. Next, do you believe you will go to heaven? And then why or why not? Now you're going to find out after the next one what someone trusts in, where their trust is. Why do they really think they're going? And many times it comes down to something. You, you when you start exploring where a person's trust is, you'll find that they really haven't a clue about the gospel. Okay? And then finally, would you like to know what the Bible says about these questions? Already know and agree, already, already know and disagree, not interested, interested in learning. Okay? Hit interested in learning. Okay? Yes. So learn more. So now, let me see what time it is right now. It's 11. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to stop for another 10 minutes, and I'm going to bring you to the climactic focal point of what we're trying to accomplish here. The one thing, remember when Billy Crystal in City Slickers when Curly? One thing. That if you don't know if there's anything, if there's one thing you can take from here that you can, that will cause you to make it, even if you forget all of this. I'm going to give you the thing that, and in, and in giving you this after the break, it's the thing that when I begin to ask people around the world, literally, to define this or to explain it, they really aren't sure about it. They know it exists, or they know basic things about it. So this is the one thing, and I've got it. It's in the app, too, so it's not something you have to feverishly write down necessarily. So let's take a 10-minute break. We'll come back for that. I'll give you that, and then we'll have some time for question and answers. So have many other things to share with you, but you cannot bear them now. So take a break, 10 minutes. Okay, lunch is approaching. So we, time is short. Um, when you go to the app, I just love this thing. I just stare at it sometimes. Go go to the top left and pull the little menu bar down. Look at that. Go to the gospel. Okay, here we go. Now, this is the one thing. I'm, I'm just going to give it to you quick. Like, just drink a water out of a fire hydrant. Here it comes. When you ask students, what is the gospel? They'll go, it's like asking somebody, how do you get to Atlanta? And they go, Woo, I love Atlanta. <laughs> I've got a lot of friends there. They can't, they know it, they think, but they can't explain it. It's like I'm sitting in my neighborhood where I've lived for 12 years, and somebody pulled up and goes, Can you tell me how to get to this street? And I'm thinking, You know, use your phone. But I couldn't really describe it, so I said, Just follow me, I'll show you. 
That's what most of us do. Just come to church. Just let me show you. <laughs> let me come introduce you to Pastor Brett. He'll explain it. In the research we've done, and it's getting more and more conclusive because, you know, you can, you can, um, the, uh, there's about 1%, there's 3% of churches in America that grow through evangelism. That's a fact, 3%. So 330,000 churches, there's 3% of those that actually grow through evangelism. That's what motivated my doctoral research at Fuller to say, why is that? Why only 3%? 80% of churches are plateaued and declining. And the 17% of churches that do grow, it's just people, we call it migration. Used to call it transfer of membership, but people don't even join anymore, so they just kind of migrate. Um, so my question is, why only three percent? And then if you take that three percent, two thirds of those churches that grow are come and see churches. This is what Rick Warren told me when I was doing interviewing different pastors. Tell me, what is your evangelistic strategy? Well, just come and see. And, you know, churches are in competition with that. I mean, you got, you can't just, you know, and pastors, you know, people come to me and say, well, you know, you got to come to my church, my pastor. Oh, he really feeds people. I mean, you got to be almost like a Benihana chef as a pastor. You got, you just can't give people a verse. You got to have fire. You got to be flipping scriptures around and, you know, you know, you, you just got to be a show. You got to have a tap dancing duck. You got to have something going on, you know? You got to kind of unbutton, get you a little frosted tip, unbutton your shirt, get you a little set of chains, and just like I'm going to get me a little face. I wouldn't get a real tattoo, but I would get like a one that you could rub off, you know, like here. So, you know, you, no, no, there's, there's no, you can't unbutton your shirt enough to be relevant to really meet the need that's out there because it isn't just being relatable. People are desperate for answers. And so we have to be clear. So one of the things... One of the things in my work I, I came up with is why is there only 3%? And then out of the 3%, two-thirds are just come and see. So there's about 1% of people that actually can go out and engage an unbeliever in a conversation. See, that's why it isn't going to take much to change the dynamic if we can empower people to do this. And we're going we're gonna to go before this is over. I'm going to have an even... I'm going to give you one last little thing, but let me just start. One of the major reasons is a lack of clarity about the gospel. What is it? So, Pastor Brett, I go into one of our campus ministries. I hate to admit it's one of ours. Wasn't yours. It's not a veiled reference to you. Hundreds of people. People, I mean, music was incredible. Worship team was incredible. Great preaching. And then they introduced me. To ruin it all. No. <laughs> no, they introduced me, and it was during finals week. So I said, all right, everybody get out a piece of paper. I'm going to start you out on finals week with a test. Write out in five minutes or less what is the gospel. Write it out on a piece of paper. Turn it in. I went through those answers, hundreds of papers. It was telling. I would say generously, generously. 20% knew a clear explanation of the gospel. Not mine, like I have the mat. Oh, if you, I wouldn't be in like that, like pedantic, where if you missed a word that I like, you know. I'm just saying if you kind of generally could understand it and explain it. 
So the game changer I have found is just this simple thing. Memorize and master the gospel. Everybody say this. Memorize and master the gospel. Stand up. Turn to somebody and point your finger in their face like you're on the debate stage. Say, memorize and master the gospel. Turn to somebody else. Say, memorize and master the gospel. All right. All right, now be seated. If I was really going to be bold, I'd say, touch three people and tell them, memorize and master the gospel. Touch three people. Touch three people right now. (laughs) Memorize and master it. Don't overthink it. Just memorize it. Think up ways to do it. Get a placemat. Write it out. Put it up. Whatever you do. But it's right here on the app. So here's the, here it is. We're going to read this. We're going to read this. It's at the top. Or you can look at your phone. It'd be better if you just pull out your own phone. It's already out anyway. Just go to the app. <laughs> yeah, I don't ever have to say, pull out your phone. That's all. It's just, would you switch over to the app? Okay. The gospel. You there? All right. Let's read this together. You ready? The gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving he is the son of God and offering the gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins to everyone who repents and believes in him. Memorize and master it. Our kids at our church know this. I grew up Presbyterian. Uh, we didn't raise our hand unless we had a question. Uh, so it was a very traditional environment. Okay? But we memorized the doxology. We memorized the Apostles' Creed. Now, I'm telling you, if you do this, now let me explain it. When you understand the gospel, when you understand each part of this, this will be enough. There's enough to quote Nacho, there's enough strength and nutrients. Remember what I'm talking about, Nacho Libre? There's enough strength and nutrients in this to, if you forget everything else, if you memorize and master the gospel, it will give you enough. In fact, I've, I've gone through the questions in the God test, and at the end of it, I said, look, can I... And they don't even want to listen to my answers. They don't even have time. I said, look, have you ever heard of the gospel? I said, well, at least would you like to hear? Let me just explain what it is. I will help you be a better atheist by at least you knowing what it is you're exactly rejecting because you aren't clear what you're rejecting yet. Let me help you as an atheist. I will help you because you're not being a very good atheist right now. Let me help you understand what you really don't believe in. The gospel is the good news. Now, here's the thing. Hold your hands out like this. Everybody hold your hands out. They're pretending that how big you want your drink at Starbucks. Just imagine like this. Okay, here's, so on top, here's God and here's man. Okay? Every religion in the world could be reduced to this simple example. Is man right here trying to get to God. Do good works. You know, fast and pray, go to church. I mean, all of the things. See, the difference in the gospel is the gospel is the good news that God became a man. You see, he covered that gap. 
See, no man spoke like Jesus. Jesus, if any man would have, I mean, you think of the most arrogant politician that comes to your mind. No one would come close to Jesus. I knew what I was doing. I knew what I was doing. I know, I know, I know the right audience to play up to. Hey, there's not even anybody close. No, what, what would you think of a politician that goes, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You ain't even got, you, you think people over here are over the top. He who believes in me will never die. What kind of campaign promise is that? <laughs> you see, Jesus couldn't, I was sitting there in Italy and I had our, my cameraman rolling the, the camera because the guy who did the voice, the dub of the student in the first movie, the, so all the actors were there that were the voice actors because they dubbed it in Italian. And I'm sitting here on camera and I'm just doing God tests with everybody. I'm, they think they're at a premiere and they're, I've got a movie camera and they're thinking, so I'm, I'm just, I just, I'm just, I've got journalists there and they're wanting to interview me and I'm, I got them on camera going, so do you believe in God? Well, no, I don't believe in God. Well, would you like, so while the camera's rolling, they think that, I said, let me just, this is a little survey here, so I'm just, I'm just doing God tests with people on camera, recording all their thoughts. So I get to the kid who plays the, who's the voice of the student in God's Not Dead 1, the first movie. And we got to the end of it. He goes, he goes, I don't believe in the church. I don't believe in the Bible. He said, no man could die for my sin. And I got so excited. I said, you're exactly right. I said, this is incredible. You're close. I said, because that's why Jesus couldn't have been just a man. I said, God became a man, the invisible creator becomes a man. You see, if I have three sons, if I just said, you know what, I want to tell you all, I, I, I offered my son for the sins of this country. You know, I sacrificed him. And you think that's the ultimate child abuse. For God to have just sent his son, if all Jesus was was a man, that ultimately could be an act of cowardice because, wait a minute, you, just, you, you put your son out there for that? But see, it was the creator himself that became a man, the creator of the wood that the cross was made from, the nails, the source of the iron ore, whatever. So that's why Jesus couldn't have been just a man. Somebody said, well, you know, how can somebody die for your sins? Well, look, if you do something to me, then I can forgive you. But who can pay for the sins against an infinite God? What about the sins against him? An infinite sin requires an infinite sacrifice. So no matter how you look at it, whatever angle, this, this good news is that God... And see, if Christ was not God, then all we really have in Jesus is another delegate, another representative that we're not quite sure he got it right. How do we know? See, without God becoming man, we're still languishing in uncertainty. We're still languishing in that little gap of are we really sure this is what God expects. But because in Christ the creator has walked among us, we can have certainty. Now, we don't have complete certainty. As has been said, the only people with absolute certainty are God and and crazy people. But what we have is called certain uncertainty. Meaning I'm not, it's like when my kids... 
were little and they would, they would be on the, you know, I'd be in the water and they'd be up on the side of the pool. I'd be, they'd be up on the side of the pool and I'd be going, jump. And my kids would be going, uh-uh, jump to daddy. Now, now see, they're going to make a decision based on evidence. That's my dad. He buys me ice cream. He scares a monster out from under my bed. Now, there's another guy over here. Uh-uh, I don't trust him. I'm not jumping to him. See, f- real faith is based on evidence. Now, that doesn't mean I have every question to be answered. I've got still uncertainty, but I've got enough certainty in what I can know to trust what I cannot. See, God has done enough for us to trust him. When Thomas was told by Jesus, all blessed are those that have not seen and believed, he wasn't condemning Thomas for not, for needing evidence. He's saying, Thomas, you have an over, enough evidence. You have seen over and over again. You, you know, at some point in time, we're just stalling. It's like, wait a minute, how many more, how many more things do you need to see? I believe today with all my heart, and I did not have the proximity Thomas had. Nor do you. We believe in those whose testimonies were eyewitnesses. And now you and I have placed our whole trust in the testimony of those that did see. And ultimately in his resurrection. God becomes man in Jesus. Then what does he do? He lived the life we should have lived. And that doesn't mean we were supposed to walk around in robes and speak in scripture all the time. It means is that Jesus lived the moral law perfectly. He broke a lot of religious laws, but he never broke the moral law. And then he died the death we should have died in our place. You see, we have a legal problem. You do something wrong, you're not, you, you commit a murder, you're in jail, you don't clang on the jail saying, you know, I've been thinking about it, I'm real sorry, I, do, I feel real bad about it. I'm ready to go. I ask for forgiveness. Great, you can be forgiven in one sense, but yet there's going to be punishment. Remember the National Treasure when that guy that kind of looks like Franco, remember him in the end of National Treasure, that detective? He kept telling Nicolas Cage, somebody's going to go to jail. Somebody's going to have to pay the price. He dies the death we should have died in our place. You see, Muhammad gets to the end of time and he steps into eternity and he looks and he, and he does. Muhammad does not even know whether Allah will accept him. He's waiting on the judgment day for Allah to say yes or no. And then when he gets Allah's acceptance, he turns and says, what about my followers? You see, certainty comes because God has died the death we should have died. Christ has, has done that. And then what happens? The three days later, he ra- is raised from the dead. And what does that mean? It proves he's the son of God. I mean, just because you say you're God doesn't make you God. I heard about a fellow that was really suffering mentally and ended up in a hospital and he thought he was de- delusional, thought he was Napoleon, you know, the French general. I'm Napoleon. I'm Napoleon, tell everybody. And finally, the doctor said, trying to get him back in reality, said, how do you know? He goes, God told me. And the fellow in the other bed raised up and said, I did not. (laughs) So just because you think you're God doesn't make you God. So just 
just because Jesus said that, so how do we know the resurrection from the dead, an historical event? So in the book, Man, Myth, Messiah, you not only have the evidence, really in reasoning it's called abduction. Inductive reasoning is what they use in science to basically say these things are true, so probably it's going to happen again. If we have an experiment over and over and over again, then inductive reasoning says chances are it's going to probably happen again. Okay? Deductive reasoning is laws of logic. You have premises that are true, and if the two premises are true, you know, all men are mortal, Socrates is, is, is a man, you know, therefore Socrates is mortal. That's a syllogism. It's if the premises are true, then the conclusion logically necessarily follows. In a court of law, when you're dealing with history, you deal with what's called abduction. And that's basically the inference to the best explanation. You see, because historical events don't get repeated like a scientific experiment. If something happened bad, a murder, it only happened once. And so you have to go back and say, what is the evidence that this thing happened? God created the universe just once. He rose from the dead. Christ did just once. So we have to go back in history and use in an objective way the fair standards of historiography to say, let's apply those standards to this historical event and say, did it happen? Executed by Pilate, tomb found empty. Disciples believe they saw him alive. Christianity started early. You know what? You know what? Do you know what skeptics, you know their favorite person? I'm talking about New Testament scholars that are atheists. Their favorite person is Saul, Paul. Bart Ehrman from the University of North Carolina, his more New York Times bestselling books, Misquoting Jesus, on and on. Uh, that's his t book titles. He actually. I was sitting in the back of his class waiting on his class to end so we could do our God's Not Dead event in his classroom, Hamilton 100 there at UNC. And, um, but on the screen was Paul, Saul, because they believe he wrote seven of the 14 letters. But even skeptics acknowledge that Saul was an enemy of the Christian faith and that something happened to turn him into the great defender of the faith. So what happened? So the best, what's the best explanation? People say, well, you know, the disciples, most of them were martyred for their faith, and people will dismiss that today. So well, plenty of people die for their faith. Yeah, today people die all the time for what they believe is true. But no one dies for what they know to be false. And these were the ones that would have been in the best place to have known conclusively whether this thing actually happened, whether Christ had been raised from the dead. If you have a conspiracy, if you've got a couple of people, keeping the secret's tough. Five people, really tough. Twelve people, more. You, there's no way you could have had that many people who went and paid such a price for what they believed to be true and knew would have known to be false if it was false. So his resurrection, what did it do? It validated, and I have a whole chapter on the resurrection, proved several things, that his word, that he is who he said he is, he is the son of God, that his words are true, and they can be trusted. And what does he do? He offers salvation for those that repent and believe in him. Repentance is a great word. Repentance is a, you know, if a coach comes in to a team and turns the team around, that's a turnaround specialist. I mean, repentance 
is a miraculous turnaround. Why do we make such a positive word negative? In fact, being a Christian is like, it's like two sides of the same coin. If you have a, a quarter or whatever, on one side is faith and the other side is repentance. See, you can't really turn to Christ in faith without necessarily turning from everything else. So we put our trust in him. Why? Because he's so worthy. He has demonstrated beyond a reasonable doubt. Not a possible doubt. You know, there's a difference. Somebody wants something conclusive, so conclusive that it's true beyond a possible doubt. Is it possible that we were not created, but, you know, some evil genius, this is all a lab experiment, and we're in some Petri dish, or we're some snow globe, as Neil deGrasse Tyson likes to quote, you know, we're some snow globe on the mantle of an alien here. That's what our universe is. It's possible. It's not reasonable. Is it possible that I just appeared here and the memory of this last two hours is just put in you by some kind of evil genius? That's possible, not reasonable. So now we have to sort through. When you're in a court of law, you don't, you don't have to answer every possible doubt to convict someone. Is, is this reasonable? So this is the exciting thing for me. I'm hoping that, that what if we kind of clear the air just a minute, and I'm going to let you take a deep breath, and we're going to have some questions. But number one, you said you were going to write down your biggest challenge and your biggest question. Did anybody do that? Let me see if your hand or if you already. Did anybody do that? One person? Okay. Before you leave here, you don't have to put your name down. Just write down, this is my biggest this has been my biggest question. We're going to have some time to answer, but I know we won't get to every one of them. Um, and I'm hoping that by you engaging in this, by you being willing to be here today. Now, one last thing before we open it up for questions. One of the things we found in our study is, is that there are people, strange people. See? Get some confirmation back there. Strange people <laughs> that are evangelists. Now, if you're an evangelist, there's, you're wondering what's wrong with you. You're, you're, you're feeling this. You're preaching to people all the time. You've, you've, um, you know, you've, you've got this, this drive to see people saved. And this, this, is not, this is not like some man speaking of drive. Somebody came from Philadelphia. Where were you? Do you still hear from Philly? There you are. Last night, the Holy Spirit spoke to him, said, I'm, I'm evangelist, I'm going to do it. And next thing you know, his daughter calls because there's an evangelism seminar. So he was, he was just bug-eyed going, I'm supposed to be here. Uh, you know, I was just hearing this from the Spirit, and she said, and I came here from Philly just to hear this. Um, if you think you might be an evangelist, it's kind of like the, we have a comedian in Tennessee, you know, you, you might be a redneck if you buy your clothes where you buy your food. You might be a redneck, you know. You know, if you have, there's certain things that are going on that you might be an evangelist. And if you have a sense that that's what you might be, then we want to talk to you. And we found that that's about 1%. So if you have a church of 1,000, there's 10 people like that. Now, here's what we do. We want to train you. Now, that doesn't, see, all of us are called to share our faith. And that's why you're here today. But not everybody here is an evangelist. You don't want to be what you're not. In other words, whatever God made you to be, whatever the gift is, then you're going to, you're going to be a better version of yourself when you learn to defend the very thing you've put your trust in, which is Christ. So you need to do this. You need to be able to explain it to people. 
Okay? I'm, I'm just, again, if all you know is the gospel and can explain that, you're going to be light years ahead of most people. But if you're an evangelist, then we're going to have a little luncheon that, so we don't have enough for everybody, so you, you aren't going to be just an evangelist for today. Okay? So don't say, well, I'll just be one today and see what they're serving, and then I'll resign as an evangelist after lunch. No, we need you to really, this, because for some of you, this is all you can stand. I mean, this is it. You're full. You're, you got, like, I got, I'm going to have to sift all this through. You got the app, it's free, you've got these books. If you don't have, again, I'm not here, get both of these books. We have, I, I brought some extra gods and dead and just, I wrote these as really a, because I'm, I'm not the smart, smart guy. I'm, I'm in the arena, but I'm in the cheap seats. So I know all the smart people and I listen to them and I say, look, I don't think anybody understands you, so I'm going to break this down so they can understand it. But you the smart guy. So what I'm interested in is do my, does my 16-year-old understand it? Because that's where we win or lose. Okay? I've got plenty of smart friends, and they, do, they, they say things that none of us would understand. But when I say, now, let me, get, let me get this straight. Is this what you're saying? That's why I'm the only pastor you know with a physicist, a physicist on his staff. Because I spend my days going to Brian. Here's what I think he's saying. Is that true? Okay, good. Got it. All right. Now, so, if you think you might be an evangelist, how many of you think you might be an evangelist? Stand to your feet if you think you might be. Not that you don't love the Lord, you don't share your faith, but you think you might be an evangelist. There's something in you that's, that just says, you know what, I, I, I think about this all the time. I've seen people saved. At least I've tried to see. Okay. So look around, let's count. How many we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay. Does anybody keep standing for a minute? Anybody counting this besides me? Because I I got over here and there was a cluster, so I just kind of blurred. <laughs> I just kind of anybody counting? Who's counting? That's a question. So far. You get you stand up and you see all them in the back? You sure? Okay. So So that's so guess what? You can be seated. You're invited to lunch. So that's, that's a little bit higher than 1% of your attendance on Sunday. So what that tells you is like our, our, our number of evangelists is higher than our attendance. We're almost at 2%. But what that shows is kind of like it's like when you get a, a child with big feet and you say, you're going to be tall. When you see that, when you see more than enough, when you see more evangelists than 1%, what that shows you is, is that when we empower you, because guess what we're going to talk about in lunch? We're going to talk about, this is like when you're on the airplane and they say, put your mask on first and then put it on your child. We're going to get you activated and fruitful. And if you, if this is the one little trick, Pastor Bay, this is where everybody misses it because they try to get everybody to do it. No, we're going to start with those who know they're evangelists because we can pressure you. 
See, if you have a gift, you can put pressure. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. Now, I get around Pastor Jim LaFoon or Jim Critcher, and I start feeling kind of, you know, I kind of get a little hitch in my giddy. I'm like, hey. So, you know, they start, they'll, they'll come in a room and prophesy over everybody. And I'm kind of going, I'm going, back up. I got this one. I got that. I got this. All right, I got it. All right. Lord says you're like a flower. Uh, now, you know what? I can do one or two of those. But if I started doing that to a whole room after about five, I'd start making stuff up. Pastor Brett would say, hey, man, you told the last guy that. Just back up a little bit. <laughs> See, I'm not a prophet. So, so now I can prophesy a little bit. I'm the kind of guy that goes into a prison and goes, I think somebody here committed a crime. I'm sensing. Over there. Over there. I think, man, he's really mystical. But guess what? Pastor Jim, the, the, Pastor Jim Critcher, Pastor Jim LaFoon, the more they do it, see, the, the more you have a gift, the stronger you get. 1 Timothy 4 says this, Do not neglect the gift that's within you. Take pains, be absorbed in it, that your progress may be evident to all. So many people spend their whole life trying to be good at what they're weak at. Not that that's not good. Okay, learn to, if you're left-handed, learn to use your right hand or vice versa. But at some point, you're going to come to this moment where you're going to say, I know who my, what my gift is. I'm gonna be, so what we want to do is we want to start, we want to create a, a, a group of people that if you stood and you're an evangelist, we want you to be, you, then you're willing. That's why we're going to really tell you what that means at lunch and create an identity here. I had a pastor one time at a big church. He goes, so I'm, I'm trying to explain this to him. And I said, now, I said, he, he had a worship conference twice a year. And I'm sitting with him, and he's, well, he loved the Lord. Every t- and every time I said worship, he raised his hand. I said, Pastor, I said, now you love to worship. Oh, God. I go, okay, okay, okay. All right, so does everybody in your church worship? Oh, geez. I mean, he, just, he could not even think about it without hands going up and, and you know, getting a shiver. Oh, God. I love the Lord. I said, so let's deconstruct why your church. I said, does everybody worship? Oh, we are worship. We're a worshiping church. 5,000 people. Front to the back, they worship. I said, I bet you've got a worship leader. He goes, oh, he's amazing. I said, I know. I said, now, I said, now you love to worship, don't you, Pastor? Oh, God. I said, I said, okay, I know. I know you love to worship. But I said, you would not want to be the worship leader. Oh, no, I've got the best. And I said, I bet your worship leader learned from a really, really good worship leader, you know, like some of the superstars. Oh, yeah, we sent them to the best conference. And I said, I bet your worship leader came back and they got a worship team. In other words, when you come into church on Sunday, you're not, you don't look up there and go, look at there. They, the words are coming up on the screen. People are on the stage. They seem to know what they're doing. No, because there's a team and leadership Worship happens, mechanics of it, without really a miracle. I mean, it's just every Sunday, isn't it? it? You come here and it happens. And pretty much people from the front to the back worship. You see, and I told him this, and I'll say it to you. If you treat evangelism the same way, evangelism will be just as pervasive as worship. Get a worship leader, get, a, get an evangelism leader. Sometimes it's several key evangelists. Build a team. Practice every week, and then pretty soon... 
The 1% we identify will become 2%, 5%. Pastor Brett was on a phone call just a minute ago before we walked in with a pastor that's not in our movement. We've been working with his church. He's, he's, he gets specific. 25% of his church is activated, actively sharing their faith. If you get that here, if you get the 10%, it's a game changer. You get to 25% of people in a congregation, we flip the script. All right. Take out a piece of paper, begin to write out your question, and if you have a burning question, we'll take a few minutes. You want to come back and help me on this, or I can just do it. It doesn't matter. Just, oh, you got a question? So while you're writing out your deepest question that might not get answered publicly, If you've got a question for me on any subject, whatever it may be, anything that's troubling you about the existence of God or defending the faith or somebody that you've talked to or, yes. Pastor Brooks, thank you so much for coming out and sharing with us today. My thank name you. is Matt Magel. Um, I'm a born-again believer and for the last 16 years. The only challenge that I have I'd love for you to speak on when sharing my faith or overcoming objections, so to speak, is some of the things that would be considered prophecy in the Bible that to this point we maybe haven't seen come to fruition and uh, non-believers using that as a means. Yeah, just give me an example. Um, oh, put me on the spot. I can't think of an exact example, but um, things maybe in Revelations or um, Book of Daniel where People would say, well, shouldn't that have already come to pass? Or, um, and, and I don't know the answer to those questions, so to speak. Well, I mean, I think that's, I mean, first of all, anytime you have apocalyptic language or imagery like monsters or, you know, Tennessee people come up and go, you know, you know, I, I've been reading the book of Revolution and when the monsters. <laughs> or then they're trying to pin you down on who they think the Antichrist is. Who do you think the Antichrist is? And I'll look at them usually and I go, well, look. If you're not really serving Jesus, might be you, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, you're a candidate. You know, everybody, everybody who's opposed to what Jesus said is a candidate for that office. So um, I, I would say that that's, that is really a poor, to the person who would say that, um, to say that something hasn't happened yet, therefore it isn't going to happen. I mean, uh, I think of the book of Second uh, Peter where Peter says, uh, in the last days, there will be mockers following after their own mocking, saying, where is the promise of his coming, of the second return? For ever since the beginning of time, everything proceeds as, as it's gone on in the past. When they, when they say this, it escapes their notice. It, you know, then it begins to talk about the flood and other things. So there's, the good news is there's been enough prophecy that, have ha that has happened, none the least being the nation of Israel. Uh, Jesus said this, you know, Luke 21, the nation Jerusalem would be trodden underfoot until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And so, I mean, Jerusalem having been regathered, Israel being regathered, regardless of your geopolitical outlook, I'm not, God loves Arabs, he loves, he loves everybody. But the point is, this little piece of ground is miraculously there, not, not the ground being there, but the, the nation there in really what Jesus said would happen. So there's enough prophecy like that that I think that uh, rather than trying to say why did something else already happen so somebody else you got a mic thank you so much for coming my name is Femi and I'll probably go ahead and talk say that slowly what is your first my name is Femi 
Femi, FEMI. FEMI, okay, good. Um, one of the few issues I have to deal with is pretty much in terms of we Christians saying, oh, God created the heart in seven days, and also basically saying the world has only been in existence for 6,000 years, and we have that kind of heart look. And a bunch of archaeologists and everyone will say, oh, the planet has probably been in existence for millions of years, but we kept saying 6,000 years, and we said God created the heart in seven days, and that doesn't really make any sense. And we, had, we go with this back and forth, and how do you reconcile that within the few minutes you have to tell someone about Christ? Okay, here's the simple thing. When Galileo looked out through his telescope, who was a believer, all Galileo really said was that the earth moves. It moves. Now, it doesn't feel like we're moving, does it? I mean, if you've got a dog in the car and the dog sticks its head out the window, the ears blow. I mean, you can tell when something's moving. Can tell whether you're in an elevator, whether it's moving. The Bible says the earth cannot be moved. So people thought theologically, scientifically, the earth doesn't move. And then they begin to realize that really there's another way of looking at that, that it really doesn't mean that it's not moving at all. It just means that when we woke up today, we didn't find we didn't go to CNN to find out where the planet is. And somebody, breaking news, you know, we've jumped out of the orbit and we're somewhere and, you know, we'll keep you posted. So there is a stability in the, that really the Bible is speaking of. So no one thinks that we're denying the scripture by us admitting the earth moves. In the same way, it's old. It's old. The six days are not six literal days. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a self-contained statement. It just says God did it. The six days of creation are, in de- are, are lengthy periods of time with a beginning and an end. Uh, it's an earthbound perspective. In other words, when it says let there be light, the earth was formless and void. If you're standing on the surface of the earth, I believe that all of a sudden light begins to appear through the shroud. That doesn't mean that, that because he made the sun, it doesn't say that he made the sun and the moon on the, or the stars on the fourth day. That's when, just like lights in the ceiling, that's when it appeared. Okay? So I believe that, that the miracle of Genesis is, even though it's not a science treatise, the Bible is true in what it tells. When it tells you something happened, it did. When it tells, when it, it's true in what it teaches, and it's thirdly true in what it touches. So... Genesis tells us that the universe had a beginning. It tells us God speaks the information in, into the system. Uh, and I think there's enough in that story that we can tell this is not a, a myth that man's making up about God, but something that God is speaking to us. Uh, and especially when you see, you know, coming through Moses and several thousand years ago, it's pretty astounding. So I don't have any problem saying the earth is... 5 billion years old or 4.5 and the universe is 13.7 billion years old. I have absolutely no conflict in my faith or my faith in Scripture just dealing with that evidence. Now, if somebody says, I believe the earth is young, and I I say, great. I say, now that's that's a faith position. The scientific evidence doesn't point to that. And frankly, I've never met an atheist yet that says the earth is young. So what I say to my young earth friends is, don't freak out because I believe that. Just tell the atheist, look, we'll use your facts and the things you say and show you that God, the evidence still is that God exists and that he's revealed himself in Scripture. So I have no problem with any of that. Does any follow-up on that? Does that help hurt? 
Pastor Brett, Pastor Brett's going to set it straight. Just use this. Okay. Um, with respect to that, that one point on, in Genesis, the word days is interpreted many ways in Scripture, i.e., the day of the Lord. Well, the day of the Lord doesn't mean a 24-hour period. It means a period of time that God is going to do something. And so it's possible for those who are young earthers to say day is 24 hours. Uh, it's another way to look at people who believe that it is an era, a period of time in which God did things, and it's just as legitimate by way of interpretation. So when, when you have some confusion with respect to what a word means, don't be dogmatic because there are both sides that can support their point. So the young earth people, I've read books on this. I spent my month of February doing this. And it's not the only time, but because I'm a biology major, I love this stuff. And so I understand about carbon dating, and I also understand about how folks who believe the flood actually produced pressure in the earth that caused organic material to appear to be older as a result of the pressure. Therefore, the carbon dating is not inaccurate. It's just off. Meaning, according to the systems that they have, yes, it looks like, because carbon dating is, is understanding exactly how much carbon is left in something because it degrades at a certain, at a certain rate. And so you're able... Am I losing you? <laughs> you're able to determine... I love it. You're able to determine how long something has been around by the amount of carbon that is degraded from it. Well, the, the young earth people say, well, even though it seems that carbon wasn't around for a long period of time, something or the carbon in the stuff wasn't around for a certain period of time, something may have pressed it to a, 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 the earth, excuse me, the water may have made pressure happen to such a degree that it caused the organic matter, which was all destroyed at one time, to appear to be much older than it really, really is. And so there are all kinds of reasons that the young earth people actually believe this, and there are all kinds of reasons that the old earth people. When somebody asks me that question, I say, I don't know. All I know is that God created it. But I don't say it ignorantly. I say this is the position here, this is the position there, which sounds as if I really know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, again, and I, I think that it's, again, I'm trying to reach skeptics. So they believe that we're somehow anti-science. So for the sake of who I'm talking to, if I'm talking to a Christian that really is just like they believe in this, what I don't want is a Christian to put their faith in something that once they hear another side scientifically and it's pulled out from under them, then they, they lose everything. And that's the danger of, of, of trying to have a position that maybe it can end up being fairly tenuous. So I think that we... Like Pastor Brett just said, God created it. I believe that. I believe the evidence points to the fact that the universe started. It, it came out and came into existence out of nothing a finite time ago. Whether it's whether it was thirteen, you know, thousand years or thirteen billion years, it still started. That's the evidence. The evidence shows is that life cannot. We can't account for the origin of life. We can't account for the origin of consciousness. Morality doesn't come from, a, you know, the, the Nazi scientists couldn't tell us whether what they were doing was good or bad. You don't get morality out of a test tube. Or as Immanuel Kant says, you don't get an ought out of an is. Okay, go ahead. 
What advice or strategies do you have when you find yourself trying to share the gospel with someone that you've committed sin with? Okay. Even though none of us have, you know, that kind of history. (laughs) I just heard, I just heard a, what advice do you have for us? This is not the Oprah show now. I'm just letting you know right now. We're not going down that road. <laughs> you know, I tell you what, to, now you have a pastor on the front row that's going to handle that better than I am. I, I'll put my pastor hat on and say, I would probably not, I would probably let someone else do it. Because you're going to find out that the people that you're trying to share with, whoever this may be, are really trying, they're, they're trying to evangelize you back into the old way of life. So they'll just, they'll just, oh yeah, let's talk about Jesus. You know, <laughs> whatever it takes. Yeah, I'm into that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I used to, I mean, that's the oldest con job in the world of trying to, some guy pretending he's interested in whatever you're interested in. I mean, you could be preaching Buddha and he, oh yeah, I'm into that. You know. <laughs> so my advice would be to just leave it alone. Just not do it. Because... God's big enough to bring other people around and not have to use you and put you in a situation where you have the chance to kind of, or someone else to go back, the gravitational pull, pulling you back in. So that's, that would be my pastoral advice, or else never do it alone. Okay, whoever's got a need, you've got to be by a microphone. You've got to stand up. There's going to be some work here today. Hello. Hi. Over here. Hi, Hi, my name is Jillian. I'm actually a Christian and a scientist. And I had a question. Um, Evangelizing at work sometimes is very difficult. So I wanted to know um, if you had maybe three tips or three tools of advice that I could use as a scientist to witness my other fellow scientists. What field? I'm in forensic science. Oh, good. So specifically, give me a day-to-day example that comes up in your, what are y'all looking at? What are you doing? Um, in the job I'm currently in, we're in toxicology and drug testing. So the question comes up of why is all this evil in the world? And we see what happens with these drug addicts and things like that. If I'm in the field that I'm moving to, which is archaeology, the question comes up that was just discussed about how old the earth could be and all of that. Yeah, I think, you know, evil is, I mean, really the, the subject of evil is the touch point with this with this society because it's, it's so, it's so um, paralyzing to think about what, why people do what they do. And when you get people's theories of evil and listen to them, I would just ask, where, where do you think it came from? I mean, when you, I see the gospel as a human right because I believe if, if people deserve clean water, they deserve to hear the gospel. Just like you ask when you arrest them, did you read them their rights? Well, I think the gospel is a right you at least need to hear about. And people are concerned about in, injustice, but they don't really know what it is. Where does it come from? And why? And what makes something unjust? And if we're just animals, then why not medicate ourselves? Why not do that? What is it about something inside of us that knows that this is really wrong? And we see the, we see the destruction of this. We see the... the the, the calamity of this. And so it really, it really leads to the discussion to me of what's wrong with us and who can fix us. When I go to a campus, I have a, my seminar is normally four questions. And I say in, this, in the course of what we're going to talk about, we're going to have four questions we answer or attempt to. Number one, why is there something re- rather than nothing? 
Number two, where did life come from? Number three, why are we moral? What is, it, what is it about us that we are moral beings? That when we see something, we know is wrong. C.S. Lewis would say, I know a line is crooked, but how would I know what a crooked line was unless I knew what a straight line was? So what is this sense inside of us that we understand right and wrong, justice and injustice? And the final question is, who can we trust? And really, I go further. Who can we trust to fix us? Because we all know we're broken. And so really, that's when you begin to explore people's solutions, um, it's like a guy on an airplane. I go back to my airplane stories who's sitting in seat 14D, and he was mad at me because I believed in God, and why is all this evil in the world? And I said, look, God could get rid of all the evil in the world instantly. I said, he just have to kill everybody. I said, he, I said, he tried that once, but there was one family left in Noah's day, and the virus, even in the best family, was still in them. And it replicated. I said, so God had a plan to get rid of all the evil without killing everybody. And that's what the gospel is. And I said, it's kind of like getting the last pickle out of the jar. I said, you got you to reach down there and extract the evil without, and, and not kill the person. Um, and, then I said, and then I said to him, I said, God has a plan to get rid of all the evil in the world starting in seat 14D. I said, God wants to get rid of all the evil right here. And what was amazing was he wanted us to get rid of ours, but he, wasn't to get, he didn't want to give up his. So what you'll find is, is that people, people's position on evil is usually this theoretical stalling tactic. Look over here. Look over there to try to, to, try to distract from their own situation. So... I think there's, again, the fun thing about this is as you begin to ask people questions, and, you know, it's like a good chess match, and I'm not trying to, I don't go around being tactical with everybody. I'm just, sometimes it just happens, and it, it happens uniquely. Sometimes, and I'm not trying to just sound clever here, but you just, in the, it, the more you do this, I'm, I'm literally in an Uber going down the road a few weeks ago, and the guy's, and I start doing the God test without him looking, obviously, he's got to drive. I'm just asking him some questions, and then, we get to the end of it, and I, so he's driving. I said, I said, um, I said, I got an idea. I said, let's just do a practice prayer. And he looked around like, can you do that? <laughs> I said, this is practice. It sounded like Allen Iverson. Practice. I said, no, it's practice. I said, now, because you're going to come to the point to where these things are going to hit you, and you're going to want to know what to do about it. So I'm going to practice with you. So this is the kind of prayer you pray when you decide that what we've been talking about, you're ready to make a decision. I said, you're willing to just do it. It won't count. Just practice. <laughs> this is Pastor Red. He just, he just goes, all right. So I start praying this prayer. I said, now just repeat after me. I said, again, just practice. Just, I said, just so you can hear yourself. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I mean about 30 seconds into it, the Spirit of God hits him, and he starts choking up. And I said, it doesn't sound like it's practice anymore, does it? I mean, even as he began to speak. And so it's amazing how, I'm telling you, it says that, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will or descend into the abyss, but the word is near you. I mean, really, the simplicity. God is, God is so loving. He's made everything so accessible. These discussions are so ready to happen. People are just, all they're looking for is a safe place to just 
have a discussion and not tell them everything you know like I've done to you today. I'm sorry. I'm, I kind of defeat my own principle because I'm here in three hours, you know, telling you more than you need to hear. But usually what I'm trying to do is to say, Lord, let me just be willing to walk away saying something and then like a chess match, there'll be another day. There'll be another day. And the, and the more or the less desperate we look and that crazy look in our eye like, I'm going to witness to you. You know, no, no just, just be cool. Just be cool. And then watch day in and day out the time unfold and then that person comes and goes, you know, I, and, and then you've moved them tactically because what a tact is, is if you're in a sailboat and you're trying to get there, the wind is contrary, you have to go here to get there. So you can't always just go straight. I was in Israel and I couldn't read the signs when we lived there for a few months. So I said, I got a great idea. I'm going to get a compass. So I'd ask people, north, south, east, or west. And I remember telling my wife, I got to figure it figured out. We're not going to get lost again. We're going north. We're just going to go north on the compass. I mean, I'm telling you, we went straight into a cliff. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, well, I guess it didn't, didn't work out like that because you can't just go straight north. You got to go around to get there. And so sometimes moments like that happen. Okay, a couple more. And then we'll go to lunch with our evangelist who stood. Hi, yes. good afternoon. My name is Carlene. And my question, you started to answer it. So how do you look at people who are culturally Christians, but the question in their mind is not, does God exist, but does he have authority over my life? And that, that's the that's where I back off and get on my knees and ask the Holy Spirit to do what he does because it's, how do we even approach that? Well, did y'all, did you see the movie, uh, what about Bob? The psychiatrist guy that every time he was asked a question, he pulled up his own book and goes, there's a groundbreaking book. <laughs> I feel like Dr. Dr. Marvin, Dr. Leo Marvin, remember him? Um, so here's the thing. So if a person doesn't believe in God, then God certainly couldn't have inspired a book. So, if a, so that's why we start with, does God exist? So if God exists, then we were talking about my young friend up here on the front row was asking a question about, you know, virgin birth. Is, is a miracle possible? Well, if, well if, if God exists, then miracles are possible. If the universe came into existence out of nothing, then everything else is a piece of cake. Raising a man from the dead, virgin birth feeding 5,000, those are, those are far less spectacular miracles in terms of an expansive thing. So the question is, does God exist? And if God exists, miracles are possible. Then we go philosophically into knowing that not only God exists, but if we begin to say, is Christianity true? And why is it true? Well, the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection proves, validates who he is. Jesus believed the scripture was true. So you build a case, a person goes from believing in God to now understanding that Christianity is different than every other religion and that by the resurrection, Jesus has, has, has vindicated who he said he is, validated his claim. That alone, if you're, if you're asking says who, like who do we trust, we put our trust in him. So then you go from, then how do you know the scriptures are true? I believe they're reliable. I believe I could go if I had time. And that's what we go. We have a whole chapter in here called We Can Trust the Gospels. 
You know, I'll end on this one because we have, again, a lot of things to say. But people claim that the Gospels could not be reliable because they were written decades later after the events. Now, if you study most of ancient history, from the, the, the question is not how long ago it happened. The question is, from the event in question, how long before it was recorded, no matter how far back it goes. And the reason why we trust the Gospels, one of the main reasons is because they were written in the first century when the eyewitnesses would have still been alive. Whereas these spurious Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas and Judas, those are second century and beyond. Okay? So, but it's interesting because I, I have a 91-year-old father. He was in World War II. And when my dad was in his late 80s, I got my, he didn't know what I was doing. I was kind of sneaky, but I got my, I got my iPhone and I wanted to record stuff. I just wanted him to talk. Because he's old school. I mean, they did, they did stuff like he was in a submarine that the submarine USS Barb got the Congressional Medal of Honor, the Admiral did, because of the feats that they did in the war. Amazing stuff. My dad's older brother was a Marine and was killed on the island of Saipan when a suicide bomber, if you will, jumped into their bunker and blew him up and everybody there. My dad's submarine commander took them to the island of Saipan during combat, and my dad and two volunteers, which really blow my mind, got in a boat and by night, just by the light of the moon, made their way onto the island, crawled through the island to find my uncle, his brother's grave, mark it so they could have the Red Cross exhume the body and bring it back for a proper burial. My dad waited till he's in his 80s to tell me this story. I'm going, you, you do this kind of, I mean, we talk, I mean, there's so many things of him risking his life and them risking their life for somebody that was already dead. What extent will we go to somebody in evangelism living? That's a whole nother story. You know, but so that, that just, I'm just sitting there going, I, you know, if I did a hundredth of that, I'd be like Barney Fife bragging on it. You know, well, you know, I didn't want to say it publicly, but, you know, I got in the boat. I mean, I'd be, I'd have just worked that, you know, that just shows you the difference in the kind of character that that generation possesses. But that was, that was about, what's, almost 68, 70 years after the fact. When John wrote the Gospel of John, Mark was written in the 50s. Most scholars would think that Luke and Matthew were before 70 AD. So, I mean, there's liberal scholars that try to push it into the late 80s, but really, I think we're safe to say that, you know, Mark was the first everybody acknowledges in the 50s. Matthew and Luke before 70, and then John was written in the 90s. So that would have been 60 years after the fact. So the, law, so the gospel furthest away from the actual events is 60 years later. And people want to say that could John have been accurate in remembering the events 60 years earlier? And I sat and listened to my father almost 70 years in the past talk about a three-year period of that war he was in and talk specifically about indelible events the death of his own brother, he wasn't mistaken about it. So you begin to see the power of this, of these, of this testimony and all of the scripture. I mean, I'm in Israel sitting in, you know, I'm sitting on the house. I'm sitting with the archaeologist, and you can't do this, but I'm sitting with the archaeologist that basically discovered the, the Ir David, city of David.
Because when the Ottoman Turks came into Jerusalem, they basically built, they took, they took the dung gate, the trash gate, and they moved it around and put it where David's city would have been there and just began to dump centuries of trash. And this man dug through it all and found it. His name, uh, Yehuda Mali. And Yehuda was telling me, he goes, he says, you see the flowers here? He said, I plant the flowers because I can still smell the trash. Centuries of trash. Hezekiah, who built the tunnel, in the scripture talks about how when the Assyrians were coming and they'd gone to Lahish, which they, you know, the Sennacherib and them, they battled and all the way down to Lahish. And, the, and you see they sent Rav Shekay, the, the, the kind of the spokesperson. He comes and starts screaming at Hezekiah. Don't tr- Isaiah is recorded. Don't trust in God. Don't trust in Hezekiah. And that Lahish, they just conquered Lahish. Those, that Sennacherib's defeat of Lahish, those stone carvings celebrating his victory are in the British Museum today. And then Hezekiah built a tunnel, diverted the water supply because the water supply of Jerusalem was on the outside of the city. So if you are under siege, they'll capture your water supply and then you're done. So Hezekiah dug a tunnel 500 meters long through the rock to divert the water supply. I've walked through that tunnel, claustrophobic as you can imagine, a 500-meter tunnel. It's still there. I mean, the historical, it's just overwhelming. It's overwhelming, the evidence. And so you begin to realize that somebody thinking that the Bible is this book that says, you know, once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. No, it's not. It's, it's real history, real people. And the evidence points to this is more than just, you know, somebody's speculative theories from 2,000 years ago. It's, it's authoritative. So anyway, one more, and then we'll go. Go to lunch. Hi, my name is Shannon. How do you uh, provide a defense against people who say, well, if Jesus is the only way to God or if Jesus is the only way, why are there people who've never heard the name of Jesus, uh, the judgment against them would be unjust, and so on and so on? Well, I'm, I'm, look, if Judge, if Judge Judy can give you a fair trial, <laughs> Jesus is going to give you a fair trial. Everybody's going to get a fair trial. Um, you're going to get judged on what you knew. Jesus taught that. The Gospels teach about the person who didn't know, the punishment being different. Um, Really, everyone, like I said, everybody's going to be judged according. Jesus will, God will judge us on our own standard. Even if we haven't heard about him, he'll judge us based upon the law and what we had revealed to us. So no matter who you are, no matter where you live, we've all fallen short and need a Savior. So... My question really isn't, and I'm not trying to be clever on this, but I'm sincere in this. My question is, what about those who have heard and heard and heard? You see, it's really a red herring. A red herring is something when you're on a hunt, the hunters would, uh, to, 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 to get off the scent, would take the red herring so that, you know, the, to divert the scent. So really, that's irrelevant because now you're dealing into fairness. So let's don't deal, like Richard Dawkins likes to say, it doesn't matter whether it's seems unfair is it true or not so the question is jesus's identity is not negated by whether or not everyone's heard or not and then we have some speculation about what that judgment might be the question is whether is it true or not does god exist is christ who he said he is and then you get down you know what's funny about it people are always pointing out all the horrible things in the bible and they'd say you know some skeptics go you just you read the book of leviticus you get there and you'll just throw it away but if you start in leviticus 
before you get to the severe laws, and really the laws aren't bad. People really aren't totally against the laws. It's the punishment. I mean, God just telling you don't do this, they could pretty live with that, but it's the stoning, it's the execution, it's all of these harsh punishments. So that's where people stumble. But just quickly, the first half of Leviticus, before they even mention the law and the punishments, it starts out telling you the atonement to be forgiven. I mean, he starts describing how to be forgiven before he even tells you what you need to be forgiven for. My last little thing, and then we'll stop. Do you know that on... The Jewish people, the Jewish people celebrate once a year. They have what's called Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Now, they don't have the sacrifices anymore, but they fast and pray for 24 hours. And it starts at, it starts at uh, it's Rosh Hashanah. It starts at New Year. And they have 10 days of, 10 days of awe. Now, I've been in Israel during this whole 10-day period, and it's pretty stunning because New Year for the, Jew, for the Jewish people isn't some, it's celebration, but it's not revelry, it's not, no. It's really a sobriety because in this starting at the new year, 10 days later is Yom Kippur. That's 10 days of repentance and reflection. Culminating in the Day of Atonement for them today where they don't eat or drink for 24 hours. They don't do anything. I mean, I was in, I lived in Jerusalem during this time. I mean, you don't drive a car. Even atheists who don't believe in it all go, but just in case, you know, I mean, they're not going to, they, they, because in that day, they believe that God writes their name in the book of life one more year. Now, every Jewish synagogue in the world on that day reads the book of Jonah. Every single Jewish synagogue. Can you imagine, Pastor Brett, every church in the world reading the same portion of Scripture? Every Jewish synagogue on Yom Kippur reads the book of Jonah on the Day of Atonement. Now, we think the book of Jonah is God told Jonah to go preach to these Ninevites. They were tough people. He got scared and ran away. So we kind of equate that to, well, the Lord told me to go preach to, to my hairstylist, and I got scared. And, no, no, this wasn't a question of Jonah running because he was afraid to preach. In fact, when you get to the end of the book of Jonah, God told Jonah, I'm going to destroy him. He ran. In the end, God didn't destroy him. And here's what Jonah says. He said to God, is this why I, this is why I didn't go to, to Nineveh? Because I knew you were merciful. I knew you were going to make me go tell them they're going to be destroyed and it wasn't going to happen. So it's because of his mercy endures forever. When you look at the Bible from beginning to end, and I'm going to tell you what, in the end of time when we're standing before God at that final day, it's going to be his mercy. We're, let me tell you something. We're all, even, even those who were judged are going to know. It's like, man, it could have been a lot worse. I'm just letting you know. We have a merciful Jesus. We can confidently look at this world and trust that when we talk about Jesus, we don't have to hope they don't find something in the Bible. There's an explanation, and let me tell you something. His mercy is all over this book. So let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for my friends. Thank you for this wonderful, life-giving uh, place called Grace Covenant where you've brought such a group of people from around the world together to focus on you, Jesus, number one, to help one another to become better followers, which is why we're here today, just simply to try to follow you. 
to follow you better, to love you more dearly, to follow you more nearly, and to, to articulate the gospel more clearly. God, I'm asking for your help. Lord, that, let not one person here be overwhelmed. If, if this seems over their head, it's still not out of their reach. Lord, let the little tools, the books and the apps and the things like that just become part of their, uh, instead of diverting to Facebook or Twitter all the time or to some other thing, Lord, let them divert to these little things that they can read and study and, and then begin to start these conversations. Thank you for every single person here, Lord. If, if, and if you're here today and you just say, I just, I, I've, I've been in doubt. I've, I've, I've believed in God, but I've really not stepped over the line and said yes to Jesus. Then you can just pray a practice prayer with me. <laughs> just practice. Just say, Lord, thank you so much for dying for me. Thank you for caring enough to become one of us to live the life I should have lived. You lived perfectly. And then you died the death I should have died in my place. I believe you've been raised from the dead. And because you have been raised from the dead, this day I can be raised up into a new person. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your, for your grace. Lord, I just pray that you would help my brothers and sisters become the people, the defenders of the faith, the articulators of the faith, they need to be in Jesus' name. One last thing here. In the back of Man, Myth, Messiah, once we go through the historical Jesus, the last chapter is called Becoming a Defender of the Faith. So literally, my seminar is in chapter 10. Gospel, reasons to believe, all the things, the tools, so I, I, I purposely wanted this to be more than just a bunch of knowledge, and, and I wanted to kind of coalesce into a point, which is practical encounters with people. So hopefully as you read through this, if you get God's Not Dead 1 and come through, you'll, you can go to chapter 10. Actually, chapter 9 before it is on how to be a disciple because just knowing a bunch of stuff about Jesus and not following him, you need to be a disciple, which, look, if you're running from Jesus and you showed up here on Saturday, you are not doing a good job. <laughs> so everybody here, I, I mean, you would not have stayed here this long, so I'm just going to count everybody here as a disciple, whether you even realize it or not. You just get credit. As we say in Tennessee, you get credit for being that, Okay. <laughs> And then, but chapter 10 is how to become a defender of the faith. And here we go. Hey, can we say thank you? Thank you, sir.